I'm attorney Ryan, and this is Working Class. I'm very excited for this episode because we're talking to Laura Whaley. She's a good friend of mine. We met a few months ago at a conference, and I absolutely loved some of the insights she had about setting healthy boundaries at work, dealing with mental health and depression, and how to build a successful career. She has amazing advice for us on this episode, and you can find her on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram, where she has accumulated millions of followers with her lifestyle advice and how to professionally say some tough things to your boss. Come along. Let's have a talk. Well, Laura, thank you so much for coming here. First things first, we have a little gift for you. Just a little welcome thing. Don't we open it? Yeah, open it up. Open it up. You never know when people give you a gift like here and you're like, do you want to watch me open it? No, no. (laughs) I love homemade cards. So this is beautiful. How do you professionally say with work, Bessie? Funny enough, I just posted one of those this morning. I saw it. Thank you for that. Um, Our legal assistant, Trish, she's super lovely. And her little thing is making these custom handmade cards for people. I got one after their wedding and she made this for you. We're really stoked that you're here. So welcome to San Diego. Thanks for having me. It's a lot colder here than I anticipated. Other than that, it's beautiful. Colder than I anticipated, Mm -hmm. too. It looks like uh, last month we didn't have a single clear sunny day in San Diego. I don't know what the hell is happening. But is this your first time here? Yes. Not in California, but in San Diego it is. Well, welcome. Thank you. What do you think of the city so far? I've seen very little of it, but it's very nice down by the water there. You're in the marina, right? I am. Did yeah. you get to do like a mental health walk around the bay today? I was so tired yesterday. Really? Oh, today. No, I didn't. I, that's on my agenda for this afternoon. Awesome. Do a little walk around. I just sat on my like balcony there and looked out and people watched and yeah, we're really lucky. You can do that walk around the bay. And especially like when the golden hour comes and it's like sunset in yeah. San Diego, we used to have those around here. Uh, not so much lately. Uh, it's absolutely stunning. And after the show today, we're going to go to one of my favorite places. We're going to go to Costera. It's a Mexican restaurant Yay. right on the water. Uh, you're going to have a great time. I can't wait. I love it. So Laura, the reason I wanted to bring you in today is you're the work bestie. You are the expert on dealing with difficult people, (laughs) workplace boundaries. Um, I think a good way to start for people who aren't familiar with Mm -hmm. you is let's talk a little bit about your work. So how do we professionally say uh, that you're the work bestie? What is it you do? How would you describe it? Yeah. So my content online, I I think I started with the idea of kind of being that virtual work bestie that kind of marries up work conversations, but in a very, you know, human way, relatable way. So my content focuses on trying to have engaging, humorous, entertaining content, but also have underlying themes or messages. Um, And that's really kind of what has happened over time. We have the How to Professionally Say series. We've got boundary setting. We've got a whole series of characters that, that we have coming into play. So it's a, it's a little bit of everything, but mainly focused around that, like relatable work. Yeah. I, I, I like that you have different channels. You have your boundary setting and yeah. how do you professionally say, cause I think especially us who are Gen Z and millennials kind of figuring out how to navigate corporate culture, mm-hmm. we deal with a lot of just unhinged human behavior on a daily basis. And you're like, okay, I want to tell this person fuck around and find out, Mm -hmm. but how do I professionally Mm -hmm. say that to a human being? And you've done a good job. I wonder how many jobs you might've saved. Um, (laughs) one thing I notice about your content is it's almost always characters in a zoom meeting. Mm -hmm. Is there a reason for that? Honestly, it's easier to film virtual kind of settings um, with all the character swaps, just having the laptop, but also the last couple of years with everyone getting sent from home, remote work has 
been a lot of people's reality. And I think over time we'll see, you know, people shifting back to the office, but remote work, I think is here to stay long-term. So just kind of kept with that. Yeah, I think it is here to stay. It's wild how hard companies are fighting it. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things that to me feels inevitable. I don't know if you feel the same way. It what is the point of us going into an office for mm -hmm. meetings that can be done over Zoom? The extra cost, the commute, um, but companies are pushing back. I mean, do you think there's going to be a point where office workers just have to give in to what companies say? You have to be in the office? I think, you know, I think there's value in being in the office and I think there's value in working remote. And I think that it kind of depends on where you're at with your career, because I think especially when you're starting out in a career or if you're working in a new field, it's actually fantastic to be in the office for the things you miss out on on home. And, you know, you know people having water cooler talks and just kind of overhearing, mm -hmm. learning different parts of the business. You gain a lot of communication skills or just effective, you know, skills to have in meetings that you don't really get as much remotely, but then remotely you get a ton of other skills when it comes to, you know, digital communication. And so I think there's a balance and I get from an employer side why they would want to bring people back to an office when it comes to more, you know, monitoring productivity and, mm. and that really culture building, that team building. But then I also understand from an employee's perspective why working remote is very, very valuable, um, especially for people who value that autonomy, that flexibility, but it's not really a one size fits all. <laughs> and so I think don't think that there's going to be a lot of success from companies if they're very one way or the other. They've got to kind of find that middle ground that works for a lot of people. Otherwise, you're sending everyone back to the office. You're missing out on an amazing pool of employees that are just remote workers. Or it, alternatively, if you're saying, you know, remote only, then you're going to miss out on a whole pool of people who want that in-person kind of work dynamic. Yeah. You know, I, I'm really glad you bring that up because it's not one size fits all. My firm is 90% remote, but mm -hmm. we do in-person meetings. We have like a, a round robin, if you will, where people come in and spend a half day in the office mm -hmm. with me just to kind of reestablish that relationship. So uh, who is remote work really for? I mean, everyone seems to want it. Everyone is looking at the job boards and saying, I want to work remotely. I can send emails from my couch. I want to be with my dog. I don't want to commute. Mm -hmm. But are there people out there where, you know, in-office work is really better? Remote work sounds very glamorous. Like everything you just said, it, it sounds nice. And it is for some people it works really well, depending, especially what season of life you're in. Remote work can also be very lonely, can be very isolating. You could spend, you know, your entire week really not having any face-to-face -face communication. And for some people that doesn't work. Um, also remote work doesn't work in every home. You know, not everyone has the luxury of having a specific space in their home that is dedicated to work. Not everyone has a quiet home. Some people like to get out of their home. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, it's easy to make working remote look very glamorous, but it doesn't work for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and working in an office can also, you know, be just or sound just as glamorous, but that also doesn't work for a lot of people. So again, it's not kind of a one size fits all. And, and it's, not something that I think should be overly glamorized until you kind of try it yourself and see like, yeah, okay, I get, you know, pros and cons working from home. Yeah. You brought up a couple interesting points there. The first being not everyone has the luxury of, mm -hmm. Hey, here's a nice clean space with an mm -hmm. internet connection and it's quiet. You can do your calls, you mm -hmm. can do your work, you have a computer. Uh, so is, is there any sort of elitism to this work from home movement? Do you think it leaves certain people out? I think absolutely that does come into play with it. Um, your accessibility to 
things like you said, having a laptop, you know, not everyone is supplied a company laptop and not everyone would have something like that at home or just the space to it. So I think there's a lot that goes into the work from home. Um, accessibility. Yeah, I believe you. So it it seems like, you know, the answer is, well, the office can be a great equalizer for a lot Mm -hmm. of people, you know, whether you live in a studio apartment with roommates, you're just starting out your career. Maybe it's your first job out of college. Mm -hmm. The office, it can be a safe space for you. It's controlled. Uh, Yeah. It's a controlled environment where you can do your work and Mm -hmm. work on your career. Um, And then as you know, hopefully you move up and your earnings go up, you can have more control over your space. But Mm -hmm. does that mean that the in-office movement, does it kind of skew in favor of high earners and higher educated people? Is it creating an imbalance? Imbalances in like what kind of experience you get working wise if you're yeah, remote like versus who gets in person. That flexibility and who doesn't? It's tough to say. It depends on the company. It really does. Really. And and, and not so much just even the company. Like I I've seen work forces where the company has one idea, but it also depends on your leader, who your manager is, what they, your department, even what the leader in your department is kind of fighting for within the company. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know necessarily if office versus work from home is favoring a specific group because I think it's so company, so manager specific. No, absolutely true. I, I made a video about work from home yesterday. Uh, I was a little upset at Salesforce um, because they have a new incentive program. Oh, you saw that. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people did. Yeah. And it turned out to be extremely polarizing. And for some of the reasons that I brought up today, um, do you know what was going on with Salesforce, their charity incentive program? Not too much. Okay. So for those who don't know, I thought this was pretty sneaky and I'd like to know your opinion about it. So Salesforce had a great idea. They thought, well, we've got these big offices in San Francisco. No one's coming. We got to motivate people to get in Mm -hmm. here. So they set aside a charity fund and they said, listen, every day you come into this office, we're going to donate $10 to a local charity up to two and a half million dollars. That was their incentive program that they offered people. At first, it sounds nice. And I'm like waiting for the fine print. (laughs) I really don't like this because here's my problem. They they set aside two and a half million dollars. They said this is two and a half million dollars that goes to charity if everyone comes into the office. So really every day someone doesn't show up, the company is saying, Hey, Laura, you didn't come to the office today. So we're taking $10 out of that charity fund. It, it feels kind of manipulative to me. Um, these are the kind of heavy handed tactics I'm seeing employers do to try to force people into the office and, and they feel manipulative. They feel aggressive. I mean, what's your take on employers just trying so hard to force people in there? (laughs) It sounds creative. I really? think, yeah, no, I think that employers, they have to get creative though, if they're really trying because you have to convince people to come back to the office. It's like, what's, what's the pro you're getting from that versus working at home? Why would I take that meeting from an office? If I can just take it from home, there needs to be some sort of incentive or motivator there to, to bring people back if that's the goal of the company. So I think companies are just starting to get creative and seeing what's working and throwing things out there. I think all of this is so new. Mm-hmm. The last couple of years have been so many new, you know, things have been incorporated into our working normals. And I think we're going to see over the next little bit as things transition potentially back to the office, um, companies getting quite creative. And so I, I don't, I don't necessarily think it's manipulative. I think that it is incentivizing coming back to the office. And I think I would prefer a tactic like that versus a forced, you know, come back every Monday, Tuesday, or you're fired. 
it gives, it still leaves the employees to have a say in it and to choose. I don't necessarily know how effective that tactic is going to be. And that's, it will be interesting to see kind of how it plays out over time. But I think that's just an example of employers getting creative. Like they're going to have to be. That's interesting. I personally, I hated the plan. The Mm -hmm. idea that, Hey, here's $10. We're going to give to charity unless you come into the office. If if you don't come in, we're not donating. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't like that so much. But I also see where you're coming from with the, Hey, if it's every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Mm -hmm. I don't know, it gives some predictability. So what are some incentives to get back into the office that you think employers should be doing? What is a good incentive to get in there? A good workspace. Like I always think Mm -hmm. about is that kind of incentive. I I think it's not because it's like a take it or leave it. The the actual place that you're going to doesn't change. But I would say if you're investing in a good office workspace that you actually want to go to something that's inspires creativity, collaboration, maybe, you know, you want to see your coworkers and go in, I think focusing on just making it a really good space to want to come into should be the incentive enough versus having to add on all these other things. Cause to me, it just goes, well, you know, I know people don't want to come into the office. So yeah, how can we force you to come into a space that you don't already want to come into? And mm-hmm. you're not going to have an enjoyable experience if you don't already like that environment. So it's not sustainable over time. Yeah. Um, so my, I would just think, you know, create a space that your employees actually want to go to. You bring up an interesting point because I feel like we're, we're talking so much about, okay, what's going to get them into the office. Do we do the charity thing? Do we do a set schedule? Do we have coffee on Tuesdays? Like at the end of the day, I think employers are asking the wrong question. They're not asking themselves, why do people not want to come here in the first place? Yeah. Create a place that they want to come to. Mm -hmm. And the reasons people don't want to come in, I mean, gosh, they, they're so quick to say, oh, people are lazy. No one wants to work anymore. But those aren't the real reasons people don't want to go no. into an office. Uh, what do you think some of those reasons are? The value of working from home for a lot of people, whether that's just it's the impact, really what it is, is the impact to their personal life Mm. is the value you get there from staying home, whether that's the flexibility to be able to, you know, pick up your kids from school at the end of the day, or to be able to be home for your dogs, or if you have, you know, delivery scheduled or that flexibility is priceless. And I think that that's actually, you know, almost added into a compensation package on on these days, because that's such a value in a job if it works for you. And then I think, you know, the going into the office piece there's got to be something that says, you know, okay, these, these employers I or employees, I know that they really enjoy working from home for whatever reason. Like you said, you can't control that because it's going to be so different for every employee that you have. But on those days where maybe you know, they don't have anything going on or they can spare a little time, what's yeah. going to direct them back to the office than just staying home? It sounds like there's this either or like either you pick up your kids from school or you work in this office. There's this choice where people are being forced to sort of sacrifice something really meaningful to them in their personal life to be in the office. It's, mm-hmm. Is that kind of the primary struggle you see? Yeah, but it's also, it doesn't need to be like that because are we saying come back to the office eight hours a day or are we saying we want people back to the office when it works with their schedule? So in that parent example, it's maybe you can drop the kids off at school. You're in the office from 10 to two. I don't really don't know when kids get out of school, but let's just say that's like a good window. Um, and then, you know, you are able to leave and pick up your children and then go back and finish the rest of your working hours. Like why is that flexibility not offered in? Why is it just Mondays in the office, Tuesdays you're at home? Why is it not? Okay. Whenever you can come to the office, if you'd like to come to the office, 
come to the office. And if that means four of your eight hours in a working day, great. If it means eight, great. Man, there's some managers that are just losing their mind hearing this <laughs> saying, wait, I want my full eight hours. You're telling people they can come in for four, go pick mm-hmm. up their kid and come back. You actually made a really good video. I was watching it on the stair climber yesterday and it was an employee wanted to go have a medical appointment. Do you remember this skit yes. that you made? She just wanted a doc, which I mean, your health is everything without mm-hmm. health. You don't have anything. Mm-hmm. You don't have an employee. You don't have a life. All you want to do is go see the doctor. And she was so the character was so apologetic to her boss mm-hmm. offering to make up the lost mm-hmm. time. Can you tell me a little bit about what inspired you to make that skit? Cause we have all been there. Mm-hmm. I remember just being a law clerk in law school and God forbid I had a final exam that day, a final mm-hmm. exam. And I'd go to my, my supervising attorney and ask for the time off. And I'd be like, Oh God, is he going to hate me? Am I going to ruin my career? Am I yeah. going to burn a bridge? Is he going to think I'm not commit, which is so stupid. It's a final. So what inspired you to make that clip? I, you know, early on in my career, I had the same kind of idea of like, I had to make up every minute if mm-hmm. I was off, but especially when it comes to appointments, like though their working hours are also your working hours. So it's so hard to schedule things outside yeah. of that. Um, and it's something that I experienced myself and I see a bunch of people experience of just setting aside important things within your life, you know, for, your work and to not have to miss out on even a minute and and kind of going minute by minute of this exchange between employer employee, even though a lot of times you end up working a little bit later here or, you know, working extra hours here, just, it really balances out. doesn't It it? really does. And so I, at one point in my career, I had a manager who kind of sat me down and explained to me, it all will even out over time, as long as you're not abusing it. And we yeah. kind of have open communication here. And you're, you're also cognizant of you have an appointment at this time. So you're, you're not scheduling a ton of meetings and, and really shifting things around, but it all evens out over time. Like you need to take care of yourself. And then it comes back to the conversation that we were just having about the flexibility and autonomy over your own schedule and how, when you have a good management system in place, good leadership that allows you to make up your own you know, working life and, yeah. and, and trust that you're going to get everything done and you're still meeting all your goals, but it doesn't mean, you know, clock in at 9am and clock out at five and, and it has to stay exactly like that. I think there's so much power in that in a job. Yeah, I agree that that's what I like about flexible work and remote mm-hmm. work. Like, you know, I love that, you know, Sam is one of our executive assistants here. If she needs to go to a doctor, just shoot me a text. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, I'm going to be at the doctor. You know, it should be about an hour. Cool. Go do it. Instead of being held captive in a cubicle of mm-hmm. all places. You know, I remember I had a, a cubicle job some time ago. And I remember having that problem. I'd be like, I need to go see a doctor. I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't feel good. I need to go see a doctor or my tooth hurts. I need to go see a dentist, but I'm out of PTO. I'm out of sick time. You know, my manager isn't responding to my request to the at the time. And it's so stupid Yeah, because we should be looking out for our health. And if you're an employer, you should be looking out for the health of your employees. Yeah. I, I think more flexible work is the way I don't know how we're going to do that because it seems that our, our whole society in general is not built around a nine to five. And I know that sounds crazy. You want to make an appointment with the dentist. When's the dentist open? Nine yeah. to five. Yeah. You want to pick up your kid from school. When's school get out? I, I'm not sure either, <laughs> but I know it's not five o'clock. I, I can't believe we haven't figured that out yet. Yeah. So I'm glad you're making those videos and helping people try to set those boundaries. Are you getting what kind of comments are you getting from people on these videos? Cause I know there's probably at least two kinds of people based on my experience. There's the people who really love it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Thank you. I used this language with my boss and it was wonderful. Yeah. 
And then you have the other kind mm-hmm. of person who says, you're out of touch. You're stupid. You've clearly never worked in an office. You don't know. So what kind of reactions are you getting? Well, we have a lot of outdated, like you said, practices within, mm-hmm. you know, the typical workforce. And I think when you challenge that or you offer an alternative to it, a lot of people who that's the only way they've ever known and they really believe in in, in that structure of things, they go, hold up. No. And then they come up with the excuses of, well, you're a millennial, you're Gen Z, you're lazy. You don't want to work. You're, I was in an article, I was featured in an article (laughs) about, uh, I don't even, it was, it was funny to read, but it was basically blaming not just me, but people who had think similar to me as the downfall of productivity. in I think it was the UK. I think Martha Stewart said, uh, yesterday, was it yesterday? Martha Stewart said that America's going to go down the drain if we don't go back to the office. It's interesting did, how it, did you see that article? Yeah. Try to I, find that if you can. I, I thought it. this was interesting. Yeah. It's interesting how it, it's so black and white for some people. It's like, well, if you do this, you fail. And if you do this, you're lazy. And it's like, well, there's so much more to that than people kind of, you know, mm-hmm. lead on. And I think it's going back to the, the kinds of comments that I get, you, you have those people who are very open to it. People willing to challenge the norms of the workforce. Then you have the people who are like, no, you're never going to make it. You're never going to be successful. You're never going to get a raise. And I'm like, Mm, my life has proven you wrong. But why the anger? Why do they get <laughs> yeah. so angry when we say, Hey, it's okay to, to change. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> why is Martha Stewart so upset about it? I think it was Martha Stewart, um, back to the office. Yeah. That's one way of doing it. <laughs> no, no, no. This is a judgment free place. This is, this is a open work environment. All right. Martha Stewart said, this is from CNN business. Can you scroll up there, Drew? Uh, Martha Stewart says America will go down the drain if people don't return to the office. If you scroll down a little bit, that's that. Laura, do we agree with that statement? I know. I, well, you're I, a Canadian. I don't even know if you're an interested party to this. <laughs> I, I, I just, I don't agree with that mentality. And I also, but I, I, I can also appreciate that change is really difficult for, for a lot of people. And for someone who, you know, for the majority of their career, they've seen things done a certain way and, and it's mm-hmm. lived up to their definition of, of success. Once that changes and we start to see things shifting and maybe your definition of success isn't necessarily aligned with a lot of people's anymore, yeah. you go back to your, well, this worked for me for so many years. And so if we're not doing this, we're going to fail. And you even see that workplace. It's like, well, we've done this for 30 years and it's like, okay, well, what if we do something different now? Yeah. It sounds like from what you're saying and what from Martha Stewart said, um, congrats on the sports illustrated, by the way. Uh, good for her. This is a woman who built her career working, you know, a very unusual career. She didn't go into an office and work nine to five. She didn't work in a cubicle for 30 years. She was a TV personality. She was an entrepreneur. Um, now she's, uh, back to being an influencer, trying modeling, you know, good for her, but this is a very non-traditional career choice that she's chosen. So why do you think she's digging in and saying, no, everyone else needs to be traditional? It's an interesting question. I don't know. Um, I, I bet you there's a lot more layers to, you know, obviously what you see in the news for, mm-hmm. for that kind of things. And then I'll bet you there is probably an, a reason why that's all coming out. I don't know too much about that. I don't know too much about the article, I, I, but I've seen that and not just Martha Stewart. I mean, it, nothing against her, but it's so many people have come out with statements similar to it that, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's back to the office or everything's crumbling. Um, 
And I just think that there's a lot of pushback to change. And I think that the pandemic's really just, you know, rapidly, we've got to a place we were always inevitably going to get to in terms of the working remote kind of dynamic. Um, And now that it's here, I think it's scaring a lot of people because Mm -hmm. it's not how they're used to operating business or not used to what they've seen. And so it, it puts the question in people's mind of, well, if I've done this for so many years and it was working and I know how to do it. It's familiar. And now we're saying the whole landscape of work is changing. How the heck do I fit into that new picture? That's a lot of change for me. Am I going to get, you know, booted out? Am I there? There's so much fear comes when, when change comes around. And I think we're seeing that within a lot of articles. It's like, well, things aren't going well, so let's blame this thing. Yeah. Um, it's funny that that last bit you said, and I noticed on the article, Martha was lamenting apparently America's decline. I know that's something making a lot of headlines today. Um, do you think things are going badly generally? In, in what way? Like in, <laughs> in, in work and society, because a lot of the pushback that I see mm-hmm. is people saying, Oh, America's going to go down the drain. This generation is losing everything. I mean, do you feel like there's a loss in the transition from the older generation to the millennials and Gen Z's taking up the workforce? I mean, is there a decline? Potentially, but we have to look at it more on like a specifics level. So are we talking about decline in profits for a company? Are we talking about a decline in morale? Definitely not profits in the company. So when I hear you say that, I'm like, well, okay, we've also gained so much Mm -hmm. in people's lives. I think the last couple of years, a lot of people have gained back a lot of their personal life and have started to redefine sort of how career fits within their, within their life and got a lot of power back. So I don't, necessarily think things are declining. I think we've opened a whole other door for gains. Um, but when, you know, reading all these articles or just seeing them come out, it's like, we got to get more specific what's going downhill. And, and does that tie back to your definition of success? And then what is that definition? Because I might have a very different one. Cause right now I'm like, I think we're on a trajectory for a lot of success and a lot of gain. Um, but my version of success is probably significantly different than some people's, um, opinions in these articles. So that's a really good point. And I wanted to see what you thought about hustle culture. Cause I think mm-hmm. that's, if anything's on the decline, I think that's what it might be. But before we get into that, you were talking about definition of success and how mm-hmm. it's different for people. And you know, the question that's coming, I mean, Laura, do you have a definition of success? What does it mean to you? I don't think I have, you know, I think definition of success, success comes with whatever season of life you're in at mm. the moment. So right now in this season of life, and if you ask me this question in a year, it's probably different, but right now success for me looks like having sustainable income to be mm. able to live my own life, but also enough time and space to be able to dive into passions, to really focus on building, um, a family, um, that to me is success to be able to balance that work and passion with growing and developing myself, my relationships. Um, and, and that's kind of where success lies for me at the moment. I think that's a great definition. It sounds like there was two steps to that plan. Uh, the first step was making sure there was at least a minimum level of financial security. Is that a fairly recent thing for you? Um, I have been fortunate to always been privileged in a perspective where I have always had, you know, money coming in. I never had to worry about where my max, like next basic meal was needs, coming. like rent basic and food needs. recovered. They were yeah. always met. And, and I'm, and I'm fortunate that I have a family that I know would help me in, in any situation if, if I needed it. So that has always been something that 
fortunately, I've never, I've never had to face um, a direct difficulty with, with income mm-hmm. or finances. And so now that I'm, you know, completely financially dependent aside from my family, which I've been for a long time, yeah. it's more, am I financially in a place that aligns with my financial goals? Mm-hmm. So is my income enough to cover basic needs, but also cover the goals that I'm working on my personal life financially. Um, that's, that's kind of what I mean by that piece. You know, that that's great because I think that's what a lot of us are working for is we're trying to figure out, okay, look, I, I, I don't want to just work every day. My dream isn't to just work yeah. all day, every day. I mean, I know we glorify hard work and effort and, and you should, there, there's a benefit to it. But at the end of the day, we all want the space to create a family, to create social, meaningful relationships outside mm-hmm. of work, to achieve our dreams, build things, you know, but it seems seems that there, you, it, it's really hard to do that without hitting a couple of necessary steps first. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like step one is you got to get your finances at least to a minimum mm-hmm. level. And that might be different for different people, you know, living in San Diego, it's going to be very different than it might be for someone in, I, I don't know, rural Texas, you know, the cost of living will be different. Um, but there's a second part of that equation and it's actually creating the space mm-hmm. to build things. So I, I want to talk about your trajectory mm-hmm. because sitting here today, I'm looking at one of the most successful content producers I know and a serial entrepreneur. I mean, you're absolutely killing it. So let's go to the very beginning, Laura. You remember your first job? Like first, first job? First, first, first job. First, oh. first time someone paid you to do some work. It's probably babysitting. Oh my gosh. I wasn't great at it. <laughs> How old were you? <laughs> 12 people leave. I know children with 12 year olds. I know. I know. I, I, I was young, maybe. Yeah. And then I was, I had a job for 14. Like I worked like young, oh young. I've always had a job. And that was yeah. one thing I always adored about my parents was mm-hmm. even though they, they raised us in a very good household, but, but a household that we were going to understand the value of a dollar and we were going to work for it and we were going to contribute. <laughs> and so we had a job from the moment we could get when I worked at a grocery store. Um, I think that was my like first, like real, like bagging or what were you doing there? Cashier. You were a cashier. I was. Yeah. Yeah. And then a tanning salon. Really? Well, was, where was all this happening? Where did you grow up? I grew up in just West of Toronto in a town called Oakville. Oakville. I'm Canadian. Uh, people don't know that about me. I'm Canadian. Yes. Yeah. I, I think you're very relaxed and happy, which is how I perceive Canadians. You know, Thank they're you. kind of our more relaxed neighbor to the North. Um, it, just curious, America, Canadians looking down South, what's the average Canadian perspective of the average American? Depends where the American's from. I think let's say, let's start with California California. since we've got, I think five or six of them in here. (laughs) That's a tough one. I think I have a lot of American friends and I think that there's just fundamental, a lot of people like to group Canadians and Americans together, Mm -hmm. which I always find so fascinating because there's like massive fundamental differences between the countries in terms of our laws, in terms of healthcare, in terms of, you know, our gun laws, which is always a big one that comes up. I know it's funny because Canada and America both have this historic, like frontier culture. Mm -hmm. You know, we were the colonies, we were this unknown world for centuries, but we've evolved so differently. Mm -hmm. Am I out of line to say Canada is really more European than America is? Canada is at least, you know, the Toronto area. We are such a melting pot. We, Mm -hmm. I, and which I love that part of growing up in Canada because you have people from all different cultures, all different parts of the world. And that was just the normal from day one. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we have great food, like any kind of food you want, we have the best because it's, 
we get the most authentic. All right, I'm going to take you up on it. When I go to Toronto, what do I need to get first? Oh my God. Whatever kind of food you want, you could get in Toronto. It's amazing. Can anything. I get Mexican? Anything, anything you want. All right, want, well, you're you going to have a San Diego taco tonight and we're going <laughs> to make some decisions. Uh, but yeah, what I'd like to know, since you're this work culture influencer, I mean, is there something Americans can learn from Canadians? That's a big question. I think fundamentally, like a lot of the fundamental differences play into the working cultures. So for something like healthcare, for example, we have healthcare in Canada, which I know isn't a thing in the United States. Yeah, it's it. That's a big problem, right? That's and a big problem because we can absolutely afford it here. Yeah, I, I, and we don't do it. Yes, I, I've heard so many different discussions on that. It's it's a it's a very heated topic. But when you think about something like that, and then you think about how it applies to work, mm-hmm. well, our benefits packages for healthcare at work cover that we do have them, and, and they cover a handful of things that aren't you know government funded. But that wouldn't be as effective or not as effective, but there would be differences between like an American healthcare work plan because you, Mm -hmm. you need that, um, to cover just basic healthcare. So there's fundamental differences, I think in the cultures that play into the workforce. Um, and I think that we do share also a lot of similarities in the, in the working culture, um, in terms of the, the overworked. uh, Yeah. What do you think some of those similarities are? You said overworked. I think that we, you know, we talk about a 40 hour work week and I think the reality for a lot of people is it, it's 40 plus hour work week and there's yeah. not that like definite cutoff time. And the expectation is you work when you're needed. You need to work. The being on call 24 seven for a 40 hour. We talked job. about drawbacks of remote work. And I think that's absolutely one of them. Absolutely. One of them, because, you you know, when you work remotely, there's no there's no distinction between your workspace and your home space. And even if you have the office with technology now, it, employers are not shy about emailing or texting you at eight o'clock, nine o'clock. But at they night. shouldn't be. They shouldn't be shy. They shouldn't be. They shouldn't be shy about that. Who cares? So what do you think? That's on it, you. That, that's on the employee on who you. gets the text. That is on the employee. Hot take alert. Here we go. So yeah. why is it on the employee? If the manager is the one with the power who's reaching out and putting pressure on them to do their job, why is the responsibility with the employee? To why do they have all the power? Point? Say more about that. It, so uh, the way I see it is we can't say, you know, employee ABCD, all these employees, they're the exact same. They're going to work nine to five. That's when they're going to be the most productive. And what about, like, I know people that they get their best work done from like 9 PM till midnight. And that's mm. where they're sending all their emails. And, and that's fine. And I think a lot of the remote work is taking the power and figuring out what works for you in your work day. So if someone's emailing me at 9 PM, great. Why am I checking that email? If those aren't my working hours. I'm not going to respond in that time anyway. So that's on me to set that boundary with myself to say, I start my work day at 8 a.m. Mm-hmm. I don't care who emails me after 6 p.m. the night before it's getting done at 8 a.m. And, and, and the more that you stick to that boundary, you know that if you email me at 11 p.m., I'm not responding till the next morning, but you do what works for you. And then I'll do uh-huh. what works for me. Now the phone goes off. You're at home, you know, you're, you're doing your thing and, and you hear the out, you know, the outlook. Mm-hmm. charm on your phone. I always get a little, when I hear it, I've turned my phone on silent for that reason, but you hear it and the employee is thinking, Oh my gosh, what if it's really important? What, it, what do you say? Let's say you're in the kitchen with this person. That phone went off at eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night. Coach me. I don't have work email it's on going, my phone. It, no work email on the phone. What no. if I miss something important? What if my boss gets mad? To find important because my, so my experience has always been, if it's urgent, which mm-hmm. Let's be honest. There's very few things that are <laughs> probably <laughs> if, if something is 
terribly happening that like it truly is urgent, which is rare. My manager knows, or the manager at the time knew that I could be called Mm -hmm. on a specific number only in an absolute emergency. And that was never to be, you know, taken for granted and and abused. Mm -hmm. And I can count on one hand how many times that happened. Was it a real emergency? Yes. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's funny. We talk about this and I always get, everyone wants to put the what if scenarios in the comments and I'm sure we'll see them here. Uh, people say, well, good luck in the military. Well, you know, military things tend to be a little life or death. Well, good luck in the fire department. Yes. If you're a firefighter, you should absolutely answer that call. Like, are you crazy? Um, but if you just work in a law office and someone saying, Hey, what happened to that memo I wanted? That can wait to the next morning. No one's going to get hurt. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there is a lot of fear there. And there are some managers who get pretty upset and maybe feel entitled to the time. Um, So. I want to go back to you being a cashier for a minute, because I remember my first job and I don't think there was ever a point in my life where I was more powerless, less sure of myself, less experienced, just didn't really. It's a scary world out there. Did you, do you feel like you were able to set boundaries back when you were a cashier working in a grocery store? Were you able to kind of look out for yourself in a meaningful way? I didn't even know what a boundary was. Really? Oh gosh, no, 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 no. But, but also that, that job in itself kind of gave you a boundary of you clocking at three, you clock it at six and no one's calling you. That was the basics. Yeah. I mean, I was also 14. So for me, it was, work was just a paycheck. Really? I mean, essentially that's what it is these days too. There's a bit more to that, but, but that's why I showed up. I mm-hmm. checked people's groceries out three to six and that was, I got a paycheck and that was it. I didn't care any more beyond that. Cause that was just a job. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, uh, I think it's setting this, Hey, this is my workspace. I come in yeah. during these times and I come out and I think it does build that for you, even though, you know, being an entry level cashier at a grocery store, you don't have a lot of power in that situation, but you do have the power to say, Hey, here's my schedule. And I respect it. Uh, do you remember what you were being paid at the time? Whatever minimum wage was. Does Canada Canada have a minimum wage right now? Right now? Oh yeah. I don't know what it is at the moment. Maybe 14, 15 at the time. Maybe let's call it 10. It was 10 bucks maybe. Mm, Okay. What did you do after you were a cashier at the grocery store? What was the next move? Tanning salon. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it was close to my house. Yeah. Free samples for employees. I, feel, I, I guess it does well in Canada. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that that was my next, my next job. Now that I think about it. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, we're talking about, you know, kind of floating from one place to another mm-hmm. and these are entry level retail. And there's a lot of people listening and a lot of people who follow me who are frustrated because they, you know, we all need a job and you get that first job. I worked at a gym for, for a period of time. So I was then, selling gym. Mem- oh, Hey, there yeah, we yeah. go. Selling gym memberships. It's such a joke, by the way, just a little tangent. People come into the gym and I was supposed to walk around with a clipboard and be like, so what are your goals? Well, this is the elliptical and it's great for meeting that goal. And here's the bench press. And it's great for meeting your goals. Like they had a whole script that we had to follow. And everyone was just like, just, just give me the membership. Yeah. I'm like, I have to do a clipboard or I get in a lot of trouble. Yeah. I have to do this. Yeah. <laughs> um, But yeah, the frustration I see from my followers is they get in that entry level role and they can't get out. Yeah. They, they work at this grocery store for a couple of years and "Ah, this isn't working. I'm not making any good money. They go to the nail salon, tanning salon. "Ah, This isn't working. And then they end up in another grocery store. Um, Do you think that there's any risk of people getting caught in that entry level cycle? Is there a way to break out of it? Apply. 
for everything and anything, even if you don't think you're qualified. What? That's a great thing you're bringing up. What if I'm not qualified? I've done nothing but work in 7-Elevens my whole life. And um, you're telling me to apply to an office job? Yeah. And you write on that resume, all the skills that you gained from working at that 7-Eleven job and you make them sound damn good because I guarantee a lot of the skills that you're building, that soft skills, that especially retail jobs are very applicable in a lot of other jobs. Um, it's just phrasing it in a way that is attractive within a resume and then apply. Oh my gosh. The things I've applied for that I, I was like, yeah, there's no way I'm going to get something like this or even the job I'm in now and every job I take on, it's like, wow, I would have thought yeah. that that was above my resume, but no, I'm actually very capable of doing that and I'm going to do it. It's, it's funny you mentioned that because it really comes down to selling yourself. I think, yeah. I think people consistently undervalue themselves. Mm -hmm. They think I'm just a minimum wage employee. I just work in a convenience store. I mean, uh, we've all been there. I was a laborer. I, mm -hmm. I earned less than minimum wage at one point in my career. Uh, and I didn't say anything cause they paid me cash and I was desperate. I needed the money. Um, I still applied to office jobs. And I remember mm -hmm. I had an interview once it was so insulting. Um, I had just done uh, firefighting. I was in the reserves. I did some laboring and I was like, look, I, let me just try to make a little more money. Let me get into an office. And the woman was so rude to me. She asked me if I knew how to email. Like, well, yeah, I emailed you guys for this job interview. So yes, I know mm -hmm. how to email. She asked me if I knew Word, Excel. She was worried if I would be able to keep up in an intellectual environment in an office. Now, for starters, I should not have taken that job. That was a mistake. But that person that I interviewed with, I feel like she lives in a lot of people's heads. You know what I'm saying? Like there's this voice people have when they've been a low earner their whole life. They start to think that that's just the best they can do for themselves. And I hope that our content mm -hmm. can help shake people out of that. Like you just need to ask and you're, you're going to send a hundred resumes out there and you're going to get 90 no's mm -hmm. and you're going to get 10 maybes. We call that an interview. Mm -hmm. That's a maybe. Okay. And the, from those 10 interviews, eight of them might go bad. And then maybe you get two options. That's from a hundred applications. I'm not, we're yeah. talking about 2% success rate, but you only need one. Yes. Mm -hmm. To break out of that cycle. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like the hardest part is up here. It's realizing that you deserve better than what you have. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'd like to know what you think is a good way to help people shift out of that. Hey, I'm stuck in this entry level retail work. I'm stuck in entry level service. I've only been able to be in restaurants. I, I want more, but I don't have the skills for it. I mean, what kind of pep talk would you give to that person who's stuck in that cycle? I want to go back to your interview for a moment. Um, oh, one, I'm sorry that you had to experience that. That that's awful and very, you know, disheartening to hear that someone would treat someone like that. And what years later, it gave me some content. So yeah, well, there, we go. there you go. <laughs> Way to turn it around. But no, it was rough, but thank you. When you're talking about that, my immediate thing goes to whoever was interviewing you is projecting. And also they need to be challenged on their biases mm. because someone interviewing someone who's different than them or comes from a different world or works in a very different space to have those biases and judgments of, oh, well, you just worked here. So mm -hmm. yeah, I don't think you're going to be able to keep up. Um, one, that person should not be interviewing. And mm -hmm. that's why we should be bringing in a lot of, you know, a diverse group of people to interview um, candidates. So we remove as much bias as we can. But mm -hmm. I look at something like that and I'm like applying for something different in a field that you are not really aware of and you want to break into being different and not having experience is like a superpower. 
is how I see it. Mm-hmm. Someone can come to me and has never worked in my industry before and they're interviewing. My mind goes to, this is a fresh set of eyes, a fresh set of thinking, someone that's going to come in and hasn't been, you know, trained all these years by someone and thinks that they know the very best. And they're going to come mm-hmm. in and be like, all right, let's change everything. They're stuck in like old habits yeah. and just a mechanical way of doing things. You see it as a way to inject something new and, and shake yeah. up your work culture. Absolutely. How many people do you employ right now? I have one full time and another coming on soon. Congratulations. Uh, Laura. You. That's really exciting. Thank you. Um, But yeah, I think as a leader, we need to challenge ourselves to say, I want a very diverse group of people working for me because that's when I'm going to get the best output when I have a bunch of very different ways of thinking. Um, and so I would, I would tell someone who who's hesitant because they don't believe that they have, you know, the skills or the, the background to work in an industry to say, no, this actually might be a very good thing and, and sell it that way. Mm -hmm. Whereas, yeah, I, I don't necessarily have the, the five to whatever years of experience that, Mm -hmm. that you might think is necessary for this role. But I've looked up what this position does and and do your research. So you can come kind of prepared and then think of all the different skills you can offer. Yeah. You worked in retail. You have great, you know, communication skills with people. You're great at networking. Um, you're great at teamwork. They're going to be the most patient people you ever met in your life. Um, what you're saying reminds me of a, a really good decision we made. Uh, we hired Trish, uh, who is one of our intake specialists and Mm -hmm. she's actually in the next two months, she'll be the department head, Mm -hmm. um, you know, really bright, but her work experience before coming to me was orange theory and Chick-fil-A. That was her experience. But in my mind, you know, people, she didn't even have a a college degree at the time she applied and we wanted her to do it. Uh, In my mind, there is no better person to be the first person people talk to in your business Mm -hmm. than someone who's been at Chick-fil-A or Orange Theory. Mm -hmm. I mean, dealing with fussy, upset customers, making people feel like their opinion is valued, making people feel heard, helping move people along and say, hey, yeah, come this way. We're going to give you a good experience. And we understand maybe you're uh, having a really tough time at work or you were in an accident and you're upset. We get it. But we're going to make this experience as smooth for you as possible. Mm -hmm. You don't learn that in a college class, but you sure as hell learn it at Orange Theory, I think. Mm -hmm. So I think you're absolutely right that these are the kind of people we should look for. Mm -hmm. And these are the kind of people who should be more confident Mm -hmm. in their abilities. Um, the full-time person you hired, how'd you find them? (laughs) My full-time employee right now. Yeah. A family relationship. All right. Do you want to talk about that? I can. You can. Okay. Uh, fiance, right? Yes. Awesome. How'd you guys meet? We met in high school. Real high school sweethearts. No. No, wait a minute. We were friends for like six years before the thought of even, you know, being romantic. When did that change? Play. Um, my last year of university. Wow. Yeah. Six years after meeting. Did he go to so, university too? Or what, to what, is, what does he do? He was a tradesman. What, what trade? Hydro. Power line technician. What do you call it? Lineman here? Line person. Oh, like working on the power lines. Yeah. Like that go up there. Yeah. I love that. So there again, what is he doing for you now? So he manages our whole operations for um, the retail line. And then he does a lot of executive assistant um, things as well. I'm so glad we're talking about this because mm-hmm. that is exactly the kind of person who needs to hear this. It's like look, uh, skilled trades are essential. It's a fantastic a career. It is a fantastic career. Job. But, you know, I, I was a skilled trade. I was a firefighter. 
a dream mm-hmm. job. But at some point in my career, I was like, this doesn't make me happy anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I got to a point where the alarm bells would go off and I wasn't even excited to go to a fire anymore. If you're not, if you're a firefighter and you're not excited to go to a fire, like that's a problem. And I, I had a tough conversation with myself. Why am I not happy? And, yeah. and then we had that interview from hell and it was really hard trying to figure out a way to break out of that. Um, but your fiance was a tradesman and now Mm-hmm. He's running a, was this an international enterprise mm-hmm. that, that you have? You, you started a couple of companies. You have your media. Yeah. And we but- got the, the retail side of things too. Um, oh my gosh, there's so many things we do, we do in the business now. And that's why we're, we're expanding. Um, and, and yeah, so he, and it's interesting because when you talk about the, the whole idea of people kind of hesitating to be like, I don't have that skill set. That was him. And he was absolutely was he hesitant. Absolutely. Really? Absolutely. And, and you know, for me, it, it, it's a lot, um, to do with finding, you know, the right people and also the way that people can work together. And, and I don't want to make this seem like it was like, Oh yeah, it's my fiance. It's an easy hire. It wasn't, it was about I think six it's to harder seven months than hiring a stranger. Well, we had basically six to seven months we took understanding, okay, how would we work together? What's the relationship going to be? How do we separate this from personal? We had this entire plan we kind of went through and, and, and it came to a point where it was like, this could, this could make sense. How do you Let's separate it. it from personal? Uh, you live together. Well, I don't know if you live together, but we you're do. with each other every day. You're in love. You're, you're planning a wedding. You're planning to build a family. So yeah. how do you separate that from work? Um, I am very good at that. I have, you know, my business side and then I have a kind of the personal side and, and, and I um, also had a father who was very good about a, a big businessman. And he, he would always make a point to me when we're talking about anything work related, finance related. Um, he'd always be like, I'm speaking to you as your father, or mm-hmm. I'm speaking to you as a boss, you know, kind of like that business dynamic here. And so I kind of transferred that over into this to say, I'm speaking to you as your partner, or I'm speaking to you as your boss right now. And when I'm speaking to you as your boss, it's, it's, no different than how I would treat any other employer, how I've ever treated anyone in the past that's worked for me. So, um, there's a lot to it. Hmm. And I think a lot comes with setting your own boundaries within the space too, and having the respect from someone, especially when you work with someone who you're closely, um, really like in relationship. It sounds like it takes work from both sides. Uh, it does. I can, I can imagine for him, it's really hard because he comes from his trade environment where he really knows what he's doing and he's got the experience and now he's doing something very, very new, but there's two new things happening. It's a new shade of his relationship with you, but also just a completely new career. So has there been any growing pains with that? Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, yes and no, because we took the time to figure out if we could even do it, if it would jeopardize the relationship, if we could work together, what our working styles work. So I also think that's very, very important when you're working with people that, you know, mm-hmm. it's, you know, them on a personal level, but you don't know how they work and, and yeah. what their communication styles are, um, how you can best support them, especially, you know, as in a boss role. So I think it took us a while to figure out if it could even work. And then when we figured, okay, I think this can work mm-hmm. having everything in place to be able to set ourselves up for success. So completely different office spaces, a very defined role for him that I am just the boss of, but not overly involved in unless he needs that support. So figuring out where he has more autonomy, less yeah. autonomy and more like, Hey, just follow my direction. Uh, you said this took a few months of you guys many having months. many months of yeah. meetings. So what was, do you remember a specific, uh, point where you guys had to really work out what the relationship would look like? Like, uh, let's say his work performance is poor. 
Yeah. The body. How, how do you even address that? We have Did a contract about it. You we have, have a contract? contract in place. Um, that has basically, it's a three month probation period, wow. which we've both agreed on. We actually sat down and negotiated a whole contract together, every, just like an employer employee would. Um, one, it's a, a skill building thing okay. also on his side, cause this whole dynamic of a work environment is different. And so I kind of wanted to walk him through just all the different pieces on a working contract in this world that you have to look yeah. for. Well, he has to be open to learning and he's going yeah. in there and he kind of sees you probably as a teacher at this point. Uh, yeah, I think any, you okay. know, good leader or manager is a teacher mm-hmm. in, in that kind of respect. And so we, we have a full contract in place and an understanding that, you know, obviously from a personal perspective, like I've got you and mm-hmm. financially we're going to be okay. But from a boss perspective, if you are not adding value to the company, if mm-hmm. you are not performing, it doesn't matter that I have a personal relationship with you. You, you won't be part of the business anymore. And so we, we have that kind of in place that says we have this period and, and to make sure that the relationship, um, the professional relationship can work and you're adding value and you're meeting, you know, the agreed upon hours and, and all of that. Um, otherwise it's just not a great fit and that's fine. And, and he'll go on and, and do something else and I'll hire someone who can do the job. Wow. Uh, that is really good that you guys took the time to come up. Did you come up with contingency scenarios? Like, did you think out like, Hey, if I have to fire you, that's DEF CON five. And, and this is the procedure. Did you guys talk about that? It's a little, kind of. it's, it's kind of dark, to. but Honestly, you have to, you have yeah. to, when you're working, when you're working with people, um, that, you know, in your personal life, you, you really have to. And so, yeah, we have, we have fallback plans from, you know, a personal perspective of what <laughs> we're going to do financially. Um, and then also professionally, I've got, you know, plan BCD and, and other people that I can bring on if I need to. And Honey, I'm initiating plan C. Oh shit, I'm fired. Yeah. But you know, at least we got the procedure laid out. So it's yeah. not personal. <laughs> you have to, you really have to though. Wow. Uh, so it, it's so exciting to see what you're doing now. Can you just give me a quick rundown of what does the current Laura Whaley empire look mm-hmm. like? Because so many people, we love your videos and I want to talk more about some of the characters and things. We love your videos, but that is just the surface of what mm-hmm. you really do. So what, what does your empire look like today? Yeah. So I, I will say I worked in the corporate world for like many, many, many years. Um, and I still do a lot of people like, well, if you leave the corporate world and, you know, start your own thing, then your content. And I'm like, listen, you, you don't leave the corporate world. I just work with them in a different capacity. Now, who do you think pays the bills? You, you, it's like the corporate world gives us a bunch of luggage, you know, yeah. that we have. And then we just carry that baggage into our, but content. you're always yeah. working with the corporate world, like <laughs> and just in different capacities. And so I, I was working, um, for a big company for years and years and years. And, and my, I left last year and a year before that, I basically set out an entire plan and I said, okay, if I want to give this a real go to make a business for myself, work for myself, which was never really on my radar until then, um, we're going to proof of concept this. We're going to figure out what this looks like from a business perspective. We're going to proof of concept the financials. Is, is it a viable source of mm-hmm. income? That you say we. Did you have a, a supportive manager? Me, who myself, and you? I. You, uh, yeah, you Brenda, uh, Donna, Donna Sue. Sue. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no. No, this, this was all <laughs> These me. people have been inside you all along. Exactly. Okay. No, this was all me. Um, and, and I would get, you know, advice from people here and there that, that I respect, but I had to do this by myself. You know, mm-hmm. my, my, my partner was completely, you know, still working in his trade and, mm-hmm. and hands off in it. And he was kind of that role of, I will support you in whatever you choose to do. And if you go and you try to make this business work and it doesn't work, 
I'm your, I'm your fallback and, yeah. and, and we can figure it out until your next kind of thing. And so that was his role. He That's wasn't involved. Good on him. Like yeah. what, what you couldn't ask for a better partner than that. No. Like just someone who's like, we are a team. Yes. I got you, you got me and we're going to help each other out. hundred percent. Um, so that's a blessing in itself, yeah. but you, you started at zero, right? You didn't have nothing a yeah. following, no. um, but you were in the corporate world. When did you start saying, Hey, I want to make some content and see how it goes. November of 2020 was when I started to post. So about what was that? Like uh, just a few months into the pandemic, pandemic. the yeah. pandemic was 2020, right? Yeah. That's when it started March, 2020. So March of 2020, you have how many followers on Instagram? Oh, do you think? Instagram, like 5,000. Okay. Just from like personal, just personal. It's so popular. Now it's I probably funny. don't even know how the people. To the average person, that's a lot. We're all sitting here thinking, wow, you had a lot of friends. Maybe but, it was I less mean, than that. I don't know. Maybe like 2,000, 3,000. Wow. I don't know. It, it was a couple thousand. Well, not no. 4 million. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when did you start your first skit? Do you remember that first skit? November of 2020, I started posting on TikTok mm-hmm. and it um, started to get traction. A couple of videos went viral and I was like, okay, let's put some more intention behind this. And that's when I really started to, to intentionally post. And then by early the next year, um, my following really took off. That's almost overnight. I mean, November to early the next quick. year. I mean, do you remember that time you crossed a million followers on TikTok? Not on TikTok, but I remember on Instagram. Why was Instagram more, more of a memorable <laughs> moment for you? I was on a work trip, um, for, for social media. I was on a cruise actually. And I had brought one of my, uh, work bestie, the, like the work bestie in all my videos. He's, mm-hmm. he's a close friend of mine. And, yeah. uh, this is the, uh, voice, the disembodied the voice, voice yes. that we hear. Work bestie. We yeah. were working together at that yeah. time. Um, truly was a work bestie and I brought him along on this, on this cruise. And, uh, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to hit a million followers tonight. Wow. And he's like, you're going to do it. I'm like, that's insane. Mm-hmm. And it was like, like, like 2am and we just like sat up and like refreshed and refreshed. Uh. <laughs> and, I, and then I remember it flipped and he's like, Ooh, congrats. And I'm like, sweet. Time to go to bed. <laughs> like it was so like anticlimactic. It, it really so, is. <laughs> but it was so exciting. And and my mom probably texted me and was freaking out because she's been so supportive throughout this this entire Dude, thing. Shout but, out to the moms. Shout yeah. out to the moms. I, I love that. My mom's the same way. It's always the first comment on my videos. Yeah. Like, Good job, honey. Yeah. You know, thanks, that, that's what it was. It was family support. It was close friend support. It was it was it was just yeah it was it was one of those things where it kept growing and when I really slowed down to be like a million people I'm like whoo that kind of freaks me out to be honest that's very overwhelming. does it freak you out I, I I said four million I don't know exactly what all of your subscribers are I might be underselling it how many subscribers do you have across all your platforms right now oh my god where's my dad he always tracks these numbers for me um over five million because I've got just so. over three on TikTok and two point four on Instagram and YouTube's a half a million and you're killing it on YouTube. Facebook recently really was, was bumping. Yeah, people are still using Facebook. Uh-huh. I gotta get on. Anyway, so yeah, <laughs> when I stop to think about it, I just it's it's a lot. That's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't take that for granted. I'll never forget. I was on a call with, uh, with TikTok actually. And we we're talking about, they're like, oh, you know, what's your, what's your goals to, to grow or what, what's your next milestones and how do you want to keep growing your account? I'm like, grow it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I hit, just hit a million. I'm good. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't want to grow it anymore. Like that, that's a lot of people. And I'm so grateful for everyone that's there. And I create for the audience I have, not mm-hmm. in mind of how can I grow this more? That's an interesting mindset. 
and and I think it goes beyond just subscribers and things like that. Uh, you hit a million, you're like, this is enough for me. I'm happy. So happy. I like this. Uh, so you're not creating content to grow and get more followers. What what motivates you to keep producing this stuff? Because your production quality keeps getting better and better. <laughs> Thank you. These videos are great. Thank you. Um, I enjoy it. And I also have an amazing community online that mm-hmm. enjoys it as well. And I, I create for them. Um, I don't need more. I think you, when you get into this mentality, like you said, it goes well beyond just social media. When mm-hmm. you're constantly like more, 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 it's a very toxic mindset to get into. Um, and the reality is you're never going to stop and be yeah, happy. Why is it toxic? Because, uh, we talked earlier in the podcast about how we were, you know, is there a decline in America? And it's my opinion that hustle culture is on the decline, the relentless pursuit of more bigger excess. Hustle um, culture is interesting because I believe in hustle culture if it's short term. Because mm. I think about I wouldn't be where I'm at right now with my business if I didn't quote unquote hustle for about a year to proof of yeah. concept everything to kind of work the two jobs in parallel to make sure that it was going to work and I put the effort in to make it work and build it. But I knew that hustle was short term. Interesting. Beyond so that year mark, cool, but it's got to be controlled and it's got to be a 40 year hustle sprint. That's not you possible. Can, you can't, you're human. You're going to burn out. And then your output, the quality of your output is just going to decline so significantly. And it's going to, you know, start to eat away at so many other areas of your life. So mm-hmm. a hustle culture to me is short term f- to set yourself up for a more sustainable long term is kind of how I see it. When I mean, is there a point where you can say, look, there's a certain amount of hustle culture that's good for you. The sit down, do a proof of concept, grind out a bunch of work, bestie Mm -hmm. videos, make a killer org chart. I I, I love that you made an org chart for your characters, but at some point you got to stop. Do you have signals you look for where you're like, listen, I got, I have to go into the hustler mentality for a minute. I'm going to apply to a hundred jobs. I'm going to make a bunch of content. I'm going to do something to change my life. At what point is it becoming toxic instead of productive for me, warning signs you look for? Well, for me, there's, so for example, when I was setting up this whole business, it it was a date. I, my, my thing was if I can, my goal was if I can surpass my current salary of income by X date, then my proof of concept has proved Mm -hmm. successful and I can move to the next step of it. So you gave yourself checkpoints. For that I did. Yeah. And now with just regular life, I think we all go through periods where you're, I hate the word like hustling, but where you're hustling, where you're working a little bit more, a little bit extra. I think that's a better, no, I'm glad you put it that way. We talk about hustle culture and someone listening might think, you know, hustle culture, what do you mean? Like, you know, 14 hours of overtime? Like, no, that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about like a concerted temporary effort with a specific goal in mind to improve your life in some way. You're taking on a little bit of extra pain, expending a little extra energy to get to this next level. But when you get there, you're going to have to catch your breath. Putting yourself in sport mode. Sport mode. <laughs> That's what it is. We're, can we make a t-shirt about that? <laughs> put it in sport, put, put it in sport mode. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you, you temporarily work a little bit harder. And I think mm-hmm. that's true just for your entire kind of career or just life in general. You work yeah. harder at certain things. But for me now, I have signs and things I look for that kind of tell me like, all right, take your foot off the gas a little bit. Like you got to focus on yourself. What are some of those things you look for where you're like, Hey, I'm starting to get in danger territory. We got to turn off sport mode. When I hit a creative block, like I'm a naturally Mm -hmm. very creative person. And when I sit down and I'm like, all right, let's pump out some creative, whether that's scripting or, you know, for anything I'm working on for clients, it's, I sit there and I'm like, I have nothing. I'm like, okay, that's a sign. 
I am so glad you brought that up because that's a sign I look for too, uh, with my work. Yeah. And, and when you're finding, I have no ideas, I can't problem solve. I can't create what I think a lot of people fall into this trap is they think I'm not a creative person. We all are. There was a time in everyone's life. I don't care how uh, disillusioned or jaded or tired you are. There was a time in your life where you would go out as a child and go play in the grass and Mm -hmm. you'd pretend you were a dinosaur. And in your mind, you feel like you could see the pterodactyls and the brontosauruses. Like there's a creative energy inside all of us, but it needs fuel. Mm -hmm. It needs rest. It doesn't work without those things. So I think a mistake a lot of people make is they go, well, I'm just not a creative person. I just don't have any good ideas. I Mm -hmm. don't know. But that's not true. You're Mm -hmm. you're probably just really stretched thin. You're probably tired. You're probably a little overworked. So when you hit that warning sign, what do you do to get your, your mojo back? my support network. So I kind of have built in my life a good kind of support network for myself of things that I know make me feel better. I know serve myself. I just come back to the basics. It's, am I getting enough sleep? Mm-hmm. Am I eating to nourish my body? Sleep comes first, then food. <laughs> and no, yeah, no specific order. And then the support but network. <laughs> it, but that is your support network. And I think that's yeah. what a lot of people fail to realize. It's like, are the basic necessities, the basic needs of, of the human existence, mm-hmm. are they being met? Am I having enough social time um, with the people in, in my life? You know, I, I, yeah. Do I have people and it doesn't necessarily need to be a therapist because I know that's not accessible for everyone, but mm-hmm. do I have people in my life that I can just talk to that will listen or someone that can offer me support that potentially a therapist kind of relationship yeah. could, um, do I, am I making time for the things that genuinely bring me joy. It it comes back to all of those things. Um, Mm -hmm. for me also my yoga meditation practice, it's a big support network for myself. And so it's just really taking time to come back to the basics and, and stepping off the gas a little bit, like I'm gearing up to do actually in July, um, to just reset so that you can Mm -hmm. come back stronger and make your success more sustainable. Oh yeah. I, and, and I'm glad you bring that up and talking about going back to the yoga practice. Cause that takes time out of your day. And I think one thing we see with, you know, whether we call it hustle culture or sport mode, really like that sport <laughs> mode. It's pretty cool. Uh, you know, there's a lot of influencers I see on social media who like to say, you need to be grinding 110% all the time. You know, no time for family, no time for hobbies. Hobbies are a waste. What are you a child? And if you don't do it, someone hungrier than you is going to take it. From I you. love Have that you seen one. those influencers? I love those They're ones. always selling some like alpha male academy. It's like $579 or something stupid like that. Um, it's, it's bullshit. Yeah, it really is. Um, You've accomplished so much and I don't sense any, oh, 110%, you know, forget family, forget hobbies. I have work to do. I have to grind. You're setting really clear limits on when those bursts of energy are going to be because it's simply not possible to do that all the time. Mm -hmm. You said something's coming into lie. Are you at liberty? Something is coming in July. Oh, I'm just taking time for myself in July. I'm kind How of is that going to change from a what you're bit. doing now? What are the changes you're going to make? Yeah. So I, I'm just going to be more mindful of the days off or truly days mm-hmm. off, taking a little bit more time for myself, um, you know, taking time off if, if you will, but it, which is different now that I am employing myself versus, you know, working for someone lot, else. It, it's funny. It, a lot of people think, oh, when you're self-employed, it's easier to take time off. Um, it's easier. It's different. You have fewer people to ask permission, but it's not really easier. 
When yeah, it's different. So I think for me, it's focusing a lot on the day to day and basically coming in with the mentality of if something comes up that is not a hell yes, it's a no or it's a not right now. That Can you say more about that rule? Because that's something I'm trying to get better at. And it's hard uh, yeah. because especially as an entrepreneur, you really want to say yes to everything because you don't really know. There's moments for that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so what is this system you're using where if it's not a hell yes, it's a no? How does that work? So those are more the moments where I need a little bit more focus time on me. So for example, the last couple of months, I've kind of been in this mindset of walk through the doors that are open for you and try them out, say yes to new opportunities, say yes to different things, learn, absorb, really put yourself out there, but say a lot of yeses. And now I'm shifting into this. If an opportunity comes up and we're not immediately like, yes, this is a great opportunity. This is what I want. This is how I want to spend my time this month. It's a not right now. Because I do not want to prioritize work over the next month, knowing that I need to prioritize myself so that I'm able to show up after this period mm-hmm. for work. Oh, you're conserving resources for yeah. the next time you enter sport mode. That That's yeah. really what I want people to take away from this. If you're really pro hustle culture, like it's it's not going to work out for you if you're trying to do it hundred percent of the time with no breaks. I know yeah. that people in that camp will look at us and say, you guys sound like wimps. You yeah, sound you're lazy. lazy. Uh, you're so new age millennial meditation. Who says like, listen, you've, you can't just put your foot on the accelerator on a car all the time. That engine's going to blow up and but humans you are no different. And that comes, well, back, well, that comes back once. to the more, more, more <laughs> culture of, I know so many people that that was their mentality. And it was like, Oh, great. You're taking time off. Like easier for me to get to the top. I've seen so many of those comments of oh, like, you're that. making it easier for me. And I'm like, good. You know, if, if that is your mentality of you just want to beat, beat, beat and like keep going and get ahead of everyone. Amazing. And you're going to work for it. I have nothing against that, but one, I don't believe you're ever going to get to your destination because you're never going to be satisfied with what you have. Mm-hmm. And two, when you reach your top, you're going to look around. And it's going to be quite lonely. That's a really important point. A lot of people miss mm-hmm. you. There's some people they get so hyper-focused on competing and winning. They forget that at the end of the day, we're a community mm-hmm. and there's no point being, um, I guess a King without a kingdom. Like, who cares if you make it to that corner office, if no one out there likes you, none of the other managers respect you, none of the subordinates like you, what's the point? Mm-hmm. What is it you really wanted? Did you want to be a leader? Did you want to be that crabby person in the corner office who just stabbed a thousand backs to get there who mm-hmm. no one trusts? Or did you want to be an inspirational leader? I think a lot of people, they focus so much on getting to that next step. They never pause and do some reverse engineering. Like who, who do I really want to be? Mm-hmm. Who is the person I want to be? People talk so much about what they want to be. They don't say who they want to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about, where if you're just doing this ruthless climb to the top without any period of self-reflection, mm-hmm. you're going to get there and realize I'm no happier now than I yeah. was when I started this campaign, yeah. but I am lonelier. Yeah. I think Absolutely. that's a real risk. So do you do any life planning? Life planning? Yeah. Do you, because you do so much. It's hard mm-hmm. to look at what you're doing. Cause you have a clothing fashion line that's coming out. You've got at least two businesses that I know of. Um, you know, do you draw this out on a piece of paper? Or are you just kind of going with the flow? How does this even work? I'm a planner 
in the shorter term. So I'm not necessarily someone that's going to plan out five years. Cause if you, there's anything I know about myself, it's that I change constantly and what I want, my goals, my life, it changes constantly. And so I, it's important to me to take moments of pause to say like, all right, these are the goals I had. This is where I'm at. What do I want moving forward? Mm -hmm. If it's changed, great. Let's kind of readjust. Um, and just going back to our previous, you know, conversation, I think for me, it all comes down to this idea of not getting so caught up on creating a career Mm -hmm. that you forget to create a life. And so when you're constantly in this mode of planning of go, 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 okay, I want more of this. I'm going to do this. This Mm -hmm. is the job I want next you are forgetting to build a life. And so when you get to that place, whether it's a certain, you know, I want to make this much money or I want to be the CEO of a company Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever it is, you don't have much outside of that. And so when you go to, all right, I'm, I've made it, I'm going to, you know, call up a friend. Well, those are relationships you've potentially been neglecting for years. You hope the friend is there. It's so funny. You mentioned something and I, I, I might be out of pocket, but I think the goal I want to be CEO of a company is probably the stupidest goal you can have. It makes no damn sense. What company CEO of what big company, little company, Mm -hmm. and who are you? Are you a ruthless, like capitalist greed is good. Are you an inspiring leader? Like who the hell are you CEO of a company? That doesn't tell me anything. I don't know who the hell you are. I mean, am I out of line? Is that a good goal to have? I want to be CEO of a company. I don't think it's good or bad. I think having a desire you, to you are just so much more <laughs> calm than I am. And I really appreciate I it. It's everyone, the yoga. That's the <laughs> everyone has just such different goals. And I, I don't think it's fair to say if it's good or bad, it's more, why do you want that? Like what comes along with that? What are you chasing in that title? Mm. It really all it is, is a title because I'm a CEO right now of company. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't, you know, means, I mean, it means a lot, but, but for me, there's so much more to the title that I'm proud of than the title itself. And so I I just think when it comes to those long-term goals, it's taking it a step further and saying, why do you want to have power? Do you want the title? Do you want the flex of it? Do you like, what is it about that is so appealing to you? And I think that's going to give you a lot more information about what you're actually after. I love that you brought that up because what you're saying is, look, the title is fine. It's not good or bad if you want that. But if you take a minute and pause and say, wait, why do I want this? It might prevent people from going down a bad road. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for my experience in the fire service. It was one of the most meaningful periods of my life. I got to live a dream job and help my community. It was wonderful. But my whole life, since I was a kid, since I was four or five years old, I just wanted to be a firefighter. Mm-hmm. And that's all I had in my brain. I want to be a firefighter. I want to be a firefighter. Um, I think if I had paused, I mean, I knew why I wanted to be a firefighter. I wanted the adventure. I wanted the camaraderie. I Mm -hmm. wanted to help people. Um, But I never, ever said, wait, 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 wait. Okay. What do you want to be? You want to be a firefighter. All right. Freaking cool, dude. Who do you want to be? Mm -hmm. I never asked myself that question till I was four years into that career. And I had to get into kind of a dark place. Like I started noticing I wasn't happy. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't happy at work. Um, I noticed I was having trouble maintaining friendships mm-hmm. because as I was becoming less sure of myself and less happy in my career, it was making me a less person, pleasant person to hang out with. I'd never asked who I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that might be the missing piece. Why do you want that title? And who do you want to be when you're there? Is, I mean, is this something everyone should be asking themselves? 
Yeah. I think it, there's a level of who, who you want to be, who, who you're working towards being or becoming. Um, and then also, you know, how you want your life to look, mm-hmm. what, what, what's important to you. Um, and how does that fit in with your kind of life structure, especially when it yeah. comes to work, I think also taking time to self-reflect on, you know, I don't care who I was 10 years ago, whether I had that dream of being yeah. a firefighter, it's, it's who am I now and what serves me best you in this season live of in life. The past if you're going to do this right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And sort of what, what your goals are, but why, why you have them. Um, yeah, I, I, it's so, it's hard to answer stuff like this because it's so personal to everyone's kind of own experiences. And mm-hmm. there's also, I think I always come back to this, like, what is your definition of success? Like for that CEO example, why does getting to the CEO, why is that your measure of success? Mm-hmm. And then kind of adding more to it of what does success look like for you? And is that actually aligned with your version of success? Or is that just what society's told you is success? Because not everything that sounds glamorous. And we've been told like, you know, once you make this kind of paycheck, you've made it mm-hmm. great. That might be the truth for a lot of people, but that might not be the truth for you. And so when you get there, you're never going to feel accomplished because that goal is never really for yourself. Anyways, it was to appease maybe your parents or a society that told you that you get there yeah. and you've made it. It's, it's, it's checking off boxes that you thought were like, Hey, here's my little yeah. scorecard, but it's not necessarily giving you the tools you need to be sustainably happy because I mean, let, let's not bullshit. I mean, money does buy happiness. You need a certain minimum amount where your basic needs are met yeah. and that's going to help you quite a bit. I mm-hmm. think where some people fall on this, Oh, I want to be a CEO trap is they assume, Oh, I'm going to be a millionaire and I'm going to be powerful and respected. A lot of CEOs out there who aren't respected. There's a lot of CEOs out there who don't make a lot of money. There's a lot of CEOs out there who don't have power. I mean, just being a thing doesn't mean anything. Yeah. And I think for the CEO example, if you want to be a CEO or whatever job it is, Mm -hmm. find someone in that job and shadow their day-to-day life. And that's going to give you a lot of perspective Mm -hmm. on what that actually looks like when you take away the glamorous elements that you've attached to it. Um, I think that's really important with different professions because, you know, for content creator and being an influencer, for example, I was fortunate enough to have a friend who's been an influencer for like 10 years. So I saw Are what that, liberty to say who looked that is? like, uh, we'll keep it private for, okay, for, for okay. this reason, but, um, I was able to see the good and the bad, mm. what it actually took to have that job. And I don't think that that's commonly known of the business behind social media and what that looks like, but understanding that there's like what the business actually looks like behind Mm -hmm. social media. People think being an influencer is so glamorous. I'm really glad you brought this up because there there are, but I think what's happened, especially in the early days of Instagram, which kind of formed our culture around our relationship with these things is they think, Oh, picture in the private jet. And here's you looking pretty in front of the Trevi fountain and Oh, you're at Mm -hmm. LA's hottest restaurant. And they think, wow, I wish I could be an influencer. Look how great it is. I mean, you talked about the good and the bad of being an influencer. Um, what are some things about being an influencer? Well, actually, let me dial that back. Do you consider yourself an influencer? I mean, I have influence. I think many of us are influencers without knowing it. I think I, you know, I hate the title influencer yeah. from being honest. Uh, I, I think it's just gotten so muddy over the years mm-hmm. and not really well-defined, but by, you know, textbook definition, influencer is someone who has influence over a group of people. And mm-hmm. that's, yes, I would say 
I would fit into that category. You definitely, whether we like it or not, <laughs> yeah. we are. Yeah. You, you gain a certain following and find that, yeah, I, I guess I'm an influencer. It's certainly a content creator. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, was there a time in your life where you thought, wow, I would love to be a content creator. That sounds exciting. I want to do it. I always enjoy making content. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it would have seemed appealing to me. Influencer, not so much. Um, I think a lot because I had seen kind of what went into it, but also mm-hmm. I didn't really know what the business looked like. Like, okay, cool. You're an influencer. You have a platform. Now what? You know, you exactly. have to build an entire business behind that. People think the money comes automatically. They think, yeah. oh, you've got a million followers. You must be rich. Oh it's my like, gosh. I got that all the time. No. You have a million followers. Why are you still working? <laughs> These corporate? are followers, not dollars. And That's I'm like, the, yeah. who's, who's paying my bills? Cause in Canada, we uh, don't have a TikTok creator fund. So I wasn't getting paid There's by no any creator pl- fund. In no, Canada? it's pennies for what it's worth. You're not missing much. I know, yeah. but people would always assume like you have this and I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm working on building the business behind it to make it sustainable long-term. And mm-hmm. so learning the whole business behind social media and how that looks. Cause it's very similar in a lot of ways to the corporate world and it's plugged into the corporate world in really a lot is. of different capacities. Yeah. Essentially you're just a digital marketer. Um, in a, in a lot of ways, you become a vendor to a corporation in a lot of ways. You I are. mean, yeah, that's how it is. You're, you deal with some marketing agent and you're negotiating contracts back and forth. It's hundred percent. You're working yeah. with people. You're, you're reading briefs, you're making up mm-hmm. your creative plans for things. You're doing a lot of pitches. Like it, it's a whole job in itself behind yeah. it. And there's up and downs too. Like yeah. there's, I, we, we lost a brand deal recently and it was really disappointing, but then we gained another one. There's this sort of highs and lows of yeah. it. Was there, what are some things when you finally got into the content creator influencer space? Mm-hmm. Cause you know, you, you really have a certain opinion of it until you get into it. Yeah. Were there some, maybe some downsides or some prizes that the average person doesn't realize happens when you become a full-time like influencer content creator? Downsides. Um, I mean, it's talked about quite a bit, but just the, you open yourself to a lot of opinions and negativity online, um, which is okay. You just need to make sure that your mental health is in a place where you're able to navigate that and it doesn't rock you to your core. Um, there's also just a lot of shifts in your personal life that you start to, I guess, experience because there becomes a point where you have a certain level of following and people start to associate that with some sort of hierarchy or power, or Mm -hmm. you notice people start to creep back into your life and kind of like, Hey, you know, it's been so long. We haven't caught up. And it's, (sighs) you've got to separate that from Mm -hmm. people who are interested in you on a personal level and people who are interested in your brand or your power that you have online or your following or something like that. That's a tough situation to get in. It is. That sucks. It, it hurts a bit when someone comes in and you can, you can kind of smell it when it's like, you've got to be aware really of interested it. in me as a person and what I have to yeah. say, or are they just hoping to grab a selfie with me? Yes. It also wow. impacts the people within your direct network. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it, you need to be very mindful of who you're posting online. For example, you never really yeah. know. I have a fiance online, even though he, he works for me, but, um, yeah, cats out of the bag. Sorry about that. No, it's, okay. <laughs> I, it's been, it, there's some articles online that have published about it too. So it's fine. But, um, it, it was kind of an early on conversation with us to go, okay, well, we know we're together, but as far as online version of me is concerned, I'm going to be mm-hmm. single or just not know of anything because I mm-hmm. don't want the internet to start to, interject into my relationship. Don't I don't care about the that opinions. space. That's no. your sacred space. And yeah. you have the power to shut the door and say, no, 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 this yeah. is where me and my fiance go. And this yeah. is our space and, and everything else. is." Outside. I chose 
this career path or I chose to be online in public. Mm -hmm. He didn't choose that. And so he's not really comfortable with that. There, there's very minimal things that he's comfortable with online. Mm -hmm. And so respecting his boundary there and then kind of saying, you know, that's a part of my life that just doesn't really fit with my online content and mm -hmm. that's okay. And same thing when it comes to my family. Yeah. Like my mother is my biggest supporter online. She cheers me on. She texts me every so time sweet. I hit a new milestone. It, it's really Shout sweet. Shout out to mom. I love it. <laughs> but she wants nothing to do with the content. Yeah. And in terms of her being in it. And so keeping that level of privacy kind of for the people in your circle that didn't choose that is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, and then also just safety concerns come along with it too, which is yeah. a, a big side of social media that once you are public enough, I mean, also is, is just isn't specific to influencers. You can have five followers online and still experience security oh, risks. Absolutely. Just your probability of hitting it goes up the more yeah. people. Have you had any security mm -hmm. issues come up in the past? Mm -hmm. Like, like people try to find you or anything. I mm -hmm. I've had someone on at least two occasions come to my office yeah. looking for me, which is really scary. Not fun. Um, yeah. did you have anything similar? I've had people show up at like hotels. I've wow, had some really? issues with stalkers. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's scary. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately it comes with the territory. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just knowing how to navigate that and always being mindful of what you're posting at what time, where your location is, um, making sure you're not posting in real time. There's a lot of just things that, stuff goes on. And sometimes it's like, Oh, I want to share this, you know, my social yeah. media. I'm like, okay, but Laura, your social media isn't the same as what it was years back when it was just personal. You know, I, it's not just your friends anymore. Exactly. Yeah. And so you, you have to be a little bit more mindful. I think in that sense, um, just to keep yourself safe and to keep those within your network safe and comfortable mm -hmm. and really respect the boundaries of those around you and not choosing to put people online who don't want to be online. Yeah. Um, which also ends up being better for you too, because then there's areas in my life that I don't even think about like, Oh, I'm going to bring my phone out and take a picture for Instagram. Cause it's that Instagram doesn't fit in that part of my yeah, life. There's a lot of people I meet who are content producers and it's the phone is always out. They're trying to document every moment, but that it's, so it's, that. Oh, it's tough. Cause you, you, you know, you feel obligated to do yeah. it, but at the same time, it's almost like having a job with your phone on 24 yeah. seven. It's like, it's there, even if you're a self-employed content producer, you need those boundaries. Cause you if do. it infects every aspect of your life where you're really in trouble is if you start dreaming about making reels. Like yeah. that's when you're in trouble. You need to take yeah. a space to go by. Uh, no, that's fantastic. I'm, I'm glad you shared that because it is a tough thing. Was there anything else about the content producer influencer career that surprised you and you got into it? It's a lot of reading contracts. There's a lot of admin that goes into content creation. There's a lot of communication that goes into it. I spent my first year basically building relationships um, mm. within the space and, and partnerships that I wanted to cultivate over a long period of time. Um, and so a lot of it was just, yeah, networking, relationship building, a lot of reading contracts, a lot of boring stuff, setting up a whole business. Um, yeah. It's, it's a lot of that. Everyone says networking is the key to success. And everyone says how important it is, but no one talks about how to do it. Yeah. You know, so when you talk about networking and building those partnerships, what did that look like? Do you remember your first actual paying brand partner? My first one? I don't remember, but I... I do recall from an early time, really getting to know the people behind the brands. It's mm -hmm. also a really driving force for me of working with people is do I like working with the people behind the brand? Mm -hmm. Obviously I have to like the brand and the product too, but it's, mm -hmm. it's the people. And it's, it, I, I was really intentional and still am about, I want to correct directly with the people behind the brands. Mm -hmm. I also want to learn kind of about their jobs. Cause I just find it fascinating and like, what yeah. do you do for the company? And you know, what are the titles? And I, I love that. And I think that 
the, this position I'm in now has put me in such a fun area just to be able to explore like a bunch of different career paths or learn you about You get to them. touch a little bit of yeah, everything. Yeah. It's cool. Um, but for me, yeah, it was just more working with people. And then I've had to, like when people have left certain companies, mm-hmm. I get an email from them from a different company. They're like, Hey, it's me again. I work for like this company now. Um, yeah. are you open to, and, and that's, a lot of the influencer territory is building strong relationships, being easy to work with, being Mm -hmm. professional. Um, I, though I have people on my team, I, I don't, I always like to deal directly at least within quite a large capacity, actually of a lot of my partnerships. Um, cause I want that face to face. I want that communication. I Mm -hmm. also like when people enjoy working with me and keeping things very professional. Yeah. And so that's, yeah, that's what I try to focus on with partners. I like that. No, that's good. Um, it's always exciting talking to you, Laura. I love how you started in that entry level role and built yourself all the way up into this great, powerful CEO. I admire you tremendously and I'm really Thank glad you. you're out here. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the characters you created for your show. Um, yeah, let's do it. It, it. It's so easy to pick on Brenda. I don't know if I want to go there right go away. Go for it. I love Brenda. Um, here, who the hell is Brenda? Let's start with that. Brenda's Brenda. What do you mean who's Brenda? What, what motivates this character? Who is she? I think with all my characters and, and Brenda too, I kind of take general, I, I don't know if it's a stereotype or just personalities that are very prevalent within any kind of workforce that you're in. Um, mm-hmm. obviously a little bit more specific to office life and corporate life, but mm-hmm. taking the, the Brenda's, the people who work is all they've kind of ever known. They, mm-hmm. someone that focused so much on building a career, they kind of forgot to build a life. Like and, they're trapped and in sport mode almost. They really, yeah, they yeah. really are, but it's become their entire identity and they can't disconnect at this point because yeah. it's so challenging to disconnect that they're just like, well, I may as well work anyways. Cause I'm going to stress about it if I'm taking time off and I really see textbook and his body language. By yeah. the way. I didn't mean to interrupt you just, no, that's I, okay. holy cow. Like yeah. you nailed that Thank character you. and the description you're giving is perfect. They're mm-hmm. trapped in that hustle yeah. culture. It's all they've known. It's textbooks. It's policy. It's you have to do it this way because that's the way it's always been done. And if you go against the grain, it's very like, she's like, what, what do you do? What do you mean? That's like what you're, you play the crazy. character so well, <laughs> you play it so well. I wonder Thank if you. you're tapping into an inner voice of some kind. Is there a little bit of Brenda in, in, in you? I think, well, I think there's a little bit of Brenda in everyone. Um, I just think some people have for myself in particular, I've kind of been able to navigate it by setting boundaries over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not a very textbook person. I don't follow rules very well. So mm-hmm. I do follow rules. I shouldn't say that, but I like to kind of push the grain of thing. Okay. I get it. But like, why don't we do things a little differently now? And mm-hmm. I think every character there's a little piece of me in every single character. Like people are always like, what character are you? And people always assume I'm Haley just because it's the one that doesn't wear a wig and <laughs> the internet thinks my name is Haley. So I've kind of rolled with it, but yeah. um, no character on their own is, is me. And I think that <laughs> that's funny because people always assume in every skit that I'm one or the other. So but I'm always like, you, you realize I'm both those people, right? Like that. That's- I think we all are. I mean, it's hard to yeah. say, I mean, that's what characters are. There's yeah. just an extreme example, little pieces of us. So for those who aren't super familiar with your work, can you tell us a little bit about each of these characters? Some of the, yeah. the more <laughs> prevalent ones that we see, we talked about Brenda, Brenda's uptight. She's trapped yes. in hustle culture. She knows nothing but work and she's a rule fall. Anything else about her that we should know? <laughs> that's, that's Brenda. That's Brenda. She has a hard time disconnecting. Yeah. didn't really build up too much of life. There's a little bit of um, parental pressure that's kind of been hinted at through episodes where she grew up in a household. That's like, if you don't do this, you haven't made it and you have to be successful and blah, blah, blah. Um, so a lot of 
parental influence in, in that sense. Like as a kid, there was this hyper pressure, like you get be, good grades, yeah. go to college, yeah. be top of your class, get a good yeah. corporate job, work there 20 years. Man, if that's not the millennial story, I don't know what is. Yeah. Uh, wow. So that's Brenda. Who who else is? is got Donna Sue. I Fan am favorite. so <laughs> glad you brought her up. I love Donna Sue. Who is, uh, for those who don't know, Donna Sue is the sweetest, most Southern mama yes. bear. I love her. Talk about Donna Sue. Donna who Sue. Is she? She's been with the company for what, 33 years. Uh, she's a lifer in the, in the company pretty much. And so she's seen the evolution of work, but she's not super, you know, mm-hmm. tied into like, it has to be done this way. She loves she loves like gossip. She just loves to learn about people. She sees the human element in the workforce. So she's very, she does not hesitate to ask kind of personal questions or yeah. get into things. She's also a safe space for people where she'll kind of give out advice um, that she's learned throughout the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's kind of that work mom that we all, we all love yeah. to have that that's Donna Sue, How but she also doesn't become- take any crap. Oh no, she doesn't, she doesn't at know. all. No, you nailed it. It's she, she's like a mama bear, but also has her boundaries yeah. and she's a lifer. And it's funny yeah. you say that because typically there's this negative connotation to being a lifer mm-hmm. in an organization. 30 years. Oh, what have you done with your life? But Donna Sue is loving it. Mm-hmm. She seems happy. So how does someone like Donna Sue exist? How does someone work 30 years in a company and be happy and healthy? And she doesn't seem to be slowing down. No, there was an episode, um, and this one's a little, I really wanted to, to make it a while ago. Donna Sue kind of opened up about, I think it was it, her and Brenda and Brenda was like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, I'll wait till retirement to be able to enjoy these things, blah, blah, blah. And Donna Sue had kind of opened up and she said, that's what my late husband had thought too. Oh my God. And so I've heard this story. It's so heartbreaking so many times within the workforce of people who they saved up all of their money and, and put everything into savings and I'm going to have a great retirement. I'm going to, Oh, I don't want to travel now. Cause I'm going to wait till mm-hmm. I'm retired to do that. And I'm okay. I have this dream, but it's okay. Cause I'm going to, when I retire and, and a lot of people, not a lot of people, but there's a group of people out there that do that, that don't make it to retirement. And yeah. so I think postponing your dreams for an unpromised future is it's really, um, heartbreaking to see. Yeah. Uh, and so the, in that episode, Donna Sue kind of opened up about that and, and basically had said he stopped, he put off living, um, for a future that he never was able to live through. And so I think it's just a good yeah. reminder of when you're in this mindset of, I'll do it later. I'll do it when I can, I'll do it in retirement. I'm, I'm saving all this for retirement. It's kind of like you, you need to enjoy a little bit now because you're not guaranteed to make it to retirement. It really, it really, uh, life is so uncertain. Yeah. We, we take for granted that we have this kind of laid out roadmap of yeah. this plan and these phases, these seasons of life, and none of them are guaranteed. No, they really never are. And all we have is the present. Yeah. You know, and yeah, there's limitations. There's going to be times where you have to grind out an awful day in the office yep. and do some work that sucks. That's going to happen. It's real life. And yep. we just got to be grown ups and, and grin and bear it. But the overall trend of our life is we need to be more like Donna Sue and be like, we need to enjoy the ride we are on because really it's all we have. Yeah. And the way to do that is with boundary setting mm-hmm. is what it sounds like. Is there anything else missing? No, Donna Sue enjoy. She works because she enjoys it. Mm-hmm. Um, and she makes a point to, if she needs to connect or disconnect for something, she just disconnects. She does what she wants to do. She's also loyal to the company. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's not going to put her life on hold for a company and she values the people. And I think that that's why she stays is because she loves the people that she works with and gets true enjoyment from it. Yeah. Um, and I think, like you said, it, people tend to knock lifers and well, what are you doing through life? And, mm-hmm. and it's like, 
I'll never forget. I, I was in a conversation, um, once with, a, with a leader at the company and we were talking about, I don't know, someone who had worked all weekend and I was kind of like, Oh, well, like, why are people doing that? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, some people enjoy that. Some people want to work with their time. And I think that that's important to know that it's okay if, if you mm-hmm. love working and if you love what you do and you genuinely want to keep doing it, um, outside of your working hours and that's great. As long as you're doing that for you mm-hmm. and not out of obligation or pressure from someone else, like that's okay. Yeah. No, I agree a hundred percent. It's the difference between I do this because it gives me meaning and yes. a sense of fulfillment in my life. That's fantastic. And frankly, if you're doing that in your career, you're going to go far. If yeah. you're doing it because you love it, that's fantastic. But yeah. if it's because I'm terrified of my boss, if it's because I want to get to that corner office one day and this is the only way, that's not good. That's how you become a Brenda and not a yeah. Don Sue. Don Sue is very successful. If, or opinion. if it's, yeah. yeah, because, you know, I am just going to keep working through the weekend because if I stop, I have to face my real life. And I have to face all the things I've been shoving under the rug that I don't want to address. I'm just going to occupy myself with busy work and never really have to face it. That is sad. Saying, I don't want to face the problems in my personal life. So I'll throw myself into my work. Frankly, I think I did that at one point in the fire service. I remember... Oh man, this, this was, uh, it took a lot. It took a lot to become a firefighter. It's all I ever wanted. And so it took a lot of little chops Mm -hmm. before that tree finally came down. And I was like, I need to get out of here and do something different. I remember one night I was out partying with my buddies. I was young and we were sitting on the beach. We were, um, we were in Encinitas kind of bar hopping. We sat there and I remember I was just looking at the ocean with my friend. And for the first time I said out loud, I said, I don't think I like my job, dude. And I remember I think my voice quavered a bit. I was so scared to vocalize that yeah. and put it in the community. And what I had done for years was I just picked up lots of overtime and yeah. my family remembers I would pick up, I'd do 10 shifts in a row. Just be a fireman, be a fireman. That's all yeah. you ever wanted. Be a fireman. You're not yeah. happy. It's because you're not being a fireman enough. Do more of it. And I never took a minute and, yeah. and said, and it took a lot of little cuts, but I remember, I'll never forget the first time I just admitted like, Oh my God, I'm not happy with my life. My personal life isn't good. And this career is not feeding it. But as hard as it was, I'm really glad I hit that point where I was able to admit that I wasn't happy. I think we're so pressured to try to look strong and not Mm -hmm. be a whiner that we don't want to admit when something's not working for us. We don't take the space to be able to even understand it. Dude, it absolutely comes back to us. So uh, who are some other characters we should meet and talk about? Yes, characters. Who do we got? We got Bethany and she's just like, you're ruthless, like (laughs) says it how it is very blunt, not taking, like will not work a second of overtime, calls Mm -hmm. it how it's, she sees it. Um, possibly get in trouble a little bit here and there, but she's just kind of the voice inside of all of us that things that we want to say at work that we like kind of hesitate to, like, she'll just say them. She's that gut reaction. Yeah. Who the hell are you to tell me this person? Tell you how it is. Um, who, so when we talk about the, how to professionally say series, is that, is that Bethany talking? How to professionally say, yeah, it's more just taking I get a lot of input from, from my community for those ones. It's just more taking things that we'd want to say. So I guess you could say kind of the Bethany Mm -hmm. versions of of words and then putting them into something that is just a different way to kind of communicate, um, those. I I love it. I think it can be a career saver for a lot of people. It also helps with your internal talk too. Yes. I don't think we talk enough about the way we speak to ourselves Mm -hmm. up here. Is there, when you have the, how do you professionally say series, do you think a little bit about people's internal dialogue? I think about more so giving people different options of how to vocalize something. So I think 
when we're communicating at work, like if I was going to say to you, you're annoying me at work. Wow. That's hard. Okay. <laughs> and, I had to hear it though. Had to and hear that's, it. you know, okay. you were having a conversation and you're annoying me. And, and that's what I want to say. It's kind of taking that, but offering kind of a solution. It's like one, why are you annoying me? Mm-hmm. I am my one this morning was about like, you know, you're stepping on my toes, kind of like doing the work. And it's mm-hmm. like, cool. We can acknowledge that you're doing that and it's annoying me. What do we change moving forward? And and so they're usually a lot longer because for example, I would say something, you know, our close collaboration, I literally think I posted this one this morning, but our close collaboration is causing duplicate work, which is a very big frustration. I think. And a lot of times when people kind of are stepping on toes is you're doing the same stuff and it's a lot of duplicate work. And so, but then there's always kind of a piece of let's define where your work kind of starts and ends so that we can avoid this so that there's actually a resolution instead of just that vocal you're annoying me and you're stepping on my toes. It's giving people kind of a way to reframe the, yes, the mm-hmm. frustrations there, the acknowledgement of, of why that's frustrating, but also what can we do about open dialogue for resolution? Why is it important to have this series at all? Like, why does this matter? Shouldn't we just be blunt and tell people exactly how we're feeling? You can. Um, and I think <laughs> that, that is a very, pol- for those who don't know, that's how you professionally say fuck around and find out. Okay. <laughs> you absolutely can. I think that there is a way to communicate things that is a bit more effective <laughs> and it removes a lot of the emotion, which is what the series kind of does is we usually get triggered and it's a very emotional response. And I'm just a big believer. And you just, you don't respond when you're triggered emotionally. You don't respond to emails. If you're angry, you take a moment to step back and remove the emotion so that you can have an effective, effective talk or communication or resolution mm-hmm. emotions aside. Is and there a reason it's important to do that communication without emotion in it? Like why, why do we even need to take a pause? It's hard to navigate the core of the frustration or the emotion when you're so deep into an emotion. And that's just not work specific. It's specific with everything is when you feel something so intently and you haven't been able to necessarily even associate the emotion to what you're feeling, let alone the root of the actual issue or what triggered that for you. Mm -hmm. It's so ineffective to try to problem solve when you're in that state because you haven't actually taken the time to reflect on what needs to be solutioned. Like you can get mad at the wrong thing. Yeah. Or like, you know, it comes up a lot in relationships. It's like, for me, a big frustration at work, it was when people would come and talk to me at my desk when I was in the middle of something and it's so cubicle lean. Yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong or intentionally damaging that that person's trying to do to me. They're not coming over being like, I'm going to ruin her day, but I would get so frustrated. And I was just like, why are you bothering me? But when I actually took a step back, I'm like, it's frustrating for me because as someone with ADHD, I have a really hard time with task switching. And so when I'm on a task and I get booted out of that, when my focus is finally on something and now you're re-triggering me out of it, it's really, really difficult for me to come back to that task with the same level of focus. So you haven't just disturbed me for your two minutes. It's probably going to take me, you know, another 15, 20 to be able to refocus. But I couldn't communicate that with you if I was just emotional of like, please stop bugging me because I needed to understand why is this so triggering to me? Like, why does this really bother me when people do so that when someone comes to me, I can say, you know, Hey, 
I appreciate, you know, doing this. Do you mind just sending an email next time? Or like, can you come by, you know, at a different time day? Or if you notice that I'm really focused in on something, can mm-hmm. can you consider not bothering me? Because it's, it's hard for me to get, those like, are all I can great advice. Yeah. And that, and I think that really highlights why it's important when we're having these triggered responses at work. Like someone makes me angry. I think when we get angry, instinctively, we just want to lash out at the nearest target and be nasty. And that's tough because if you've got someone, you know, Greg, the cubicle leaner likes to lean in. Oh, Hey, Laura, what are you working on? That's Mm -hmm. cool. He's, it's not malicious most of the time. This is just a person looking for a human connection at work. Yeah. That's all this person wants. And if you just lash out and go, Hey, fuck you, Greg. Um, it's hard to take those words back. Yeah. Once, once you've put out there like, Hey, you're bad. I don't like you. I'm mad at you. It's really hard to take that back. But if you pause and come up with a better way of doing it, you can preserve what could be a good relationship with this person and also solve the problem and your reputation. Yeah. Cause simply lashing out, is just going to make things way worse. It's now you've got a guy who you hurt his feelings and he's going to go to the next cubicle and talk about how you're the worst person in the world. And it just makes things worse. And and it's worth reflecting. I'm glad you brought up the ADHD. Mm Mm-hmm. It's one of those things that simultaneously, like we're working so hard to take down the stigma of things Mm -hmm. like that. But at the same time, I mean, do you feel like it gets taken seriously in in work culture, like that people have ADHD and it's something that might require a little sensitivity or, or some work? So it's an interesting time. So I also have major depressive disorder, like clinically diagnosed depressive disorder. How long have you been uh, struggling with that? Um, I was diagnosed in 2016. No. Yeah. 2016. Was it triggered by anything specific or I've always been like a gradual? Yeah. I've always been exposed to it. It's just a part of my journey that I've always had to navigate. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it's more difficult than others. And I think when it comes to mental health though, in the workplace, it's, I'm a tough love kind of person on this. Cause I'm like, you are in control of your situation. And you're the only one that can advocate for yourself because whether you have the same kind of mental health, you know, or mental illness going on as I do, it's going to be very different for you. Your journey with it is going to be very different. So it's a lot of figuring out what my journey with it looks like. Mm -hmm. What do I need in a working environment to support me? And then effectively communicating that instead of being like, oh my gosh, Ryan, like I have ABCD and you're being so inconsiderate right now. Mm -hmm. You aren't a mental health professional and you're also not a professional in me. So how, why would I expect you to be able to accommodate for me if I don't even know what accommodation I need for myself? And so I think when it comes to work, it's more effectively communicating what you need to be able to set yourself up for success Mm -hmm. and not necessarily, Hey, I have this, take it seriously. Because what does that mean? It's so hard because that's a natural response. What you're saying is probably the response that any reasonable person would have. It's like, listen, I have this mental health issue. I didn't choose it. I don't want it, but it's hard for me. Take it serious. And you're looking at the manager of a freaking KFC and he's like, well, I'll try, but I don't have the tools. I don't know. Heck, as a lawyer, even I I try, but if one of my employees came to me and say, Ryan, I'm, I'm depressed. I'm like, okay, that sucks. I'm sorry. Uh, But I, I don't know what to do about that. So Mm -hmm. it's important. We bring that up. Um, What are some things, I mean, you said early on in the show that if we have a boss who's crossing boundaries or failing to support someone that the employee needs to accept some responsibility for their role in that equation. So Mm -hmm. what advice do you have for someone who maybe is struggling with depression at work and doesn't feel that they're being taken seriously or have the support that they need? 
figure out what support you need and be specific in it and ask for it. And then if that's not respected and met, then you have a, a whole other issue. And I always tell managers, you're not there to solve someone's problem. Mm -hmm. Whatever someone brings to you, you do not need to pretend that you understand and pretend that you have a solution for. A lot of managers get that wrong. They They think they have to have an answer to everything and it causes them to knee jerk and do the wrong thing. All you need to do. Yeah. Depressed to hear some balloons. Like you, what are you doing? There is so much. I admire people so much that can say, I don't know, Mm -hmm. but I'm here to listen or a manager that can say, thank you for sharing and allowing yourself Mm -hmm. to, or thank you for sharing and feeling safe enough to confide in me for that. How can I support you? Mm -hmm. And then that's where the, I think obligation is on the employee to be able to communicate effectively what they need at work, because it's challenging because I know how difficult it is to go through mental health struggles, especially when you're in the depths of depression, it's nearly impossible to even figure out what you need. And it doesn't go away. It's, it's something. No, you live with it. Yeah. It stays with you. And and I think you're, I really admire you coming out and saying it because I, of all of my friends who I'm inviting on the show, I can't think of many who, who surpass you in terms of just you project such a healthy relationship with work and how to be, you know, uh, mentally stable in an unstable environment. You really do a good job teaching those things specifically. And I think people might see that and go, well, she has the perfect life. She does (laughs) meditation and balance. She doesn't know. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like all of these tools that you're teaching people, it's symptomatic of the pain that you deal with Mm -hmm. every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's absolutely nuts that that people would see you offering really good advice and not realize that you too struggle with depression. Mm-hmm. So is it something that comes, you know, is it ebbs and flows? Is it, what does it look like to you when you say, Hey, I, I do struggle with depression. What does that look like? I think for me, depression, my depression and my ADHD go very, very hand in hand. So mm-hmm. if let's call it a flare up, if, if my depression starts to to creep back in, um, then my ADHD gets real bad too. So it's like everything they, all they at once. They feed on each other. Yeah. Okay. But, but for me, it's, it's, I have a good support network. I know the signs mm-hmm. and I also know what to ask for when you, depression does come back for me. And I think it's also important to realize that if you have depression, it, you go through seasons where it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's really, really tough. And then you have seasons where you're like, I don't feel depressed anymore, but it's really important to remember that it's just a piece of your story. That's going to come up again in the future. So how can you best support yourself now to set yourself up for success when it comes up again? Cause it will, it yeah. absolutely will. Um, and so for me, it was just, I, I struggled for years not knowing it. And I don't want to make it sound easy of like, I just knew from day one of, no, I had years, years that it, it was awful. Um, and now I've kind of built this support network of, I know what I need to ask for help. I know what I struggle with, with ADHD. Cause it's very different for everyone. Yeah. I know how depression impacts my work. I know how it impacts my day-to-day life and what I'm going to need during those times. You have a, a long relationship with it. So you've learned some of the warning signs. Well, let, let me just take a minute. Like yeah. this is, I'm not a mental health professional. You're not either. We're just two people, yeah. you know, talking about problems that everyone deals with every day. This isn't medical advice. This isn't clinical. Yeah. We're not advocating. The lawyer in you coming Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Disclaimer. <laughs> uh, no, but that said, you know, when when do you have a sense that, Hey, I'm having a flare up with my depression. Are there, are there sort of telltale flags that you look for? My motivation starts to drop. It gets really hard to do the things I enjoy on a day to day. What does low motivation look like? Getting out of bed, just getting out of bed. And it's different than just being tired. It's so different. How is it different? It's, I had my eight hours of sleep. 
-hmm. and physically, yeah, I'm rested, but mentally I am exhausted. Mm -hmm. I am so tired of just existing like day-to-day life and existing is exhausting when depression comes up. Do you find dread or anxiety creep back in also, or is it mostly an exhaustion thing? Like when do you realize, "Uh Oh, I'm, I'm really in trouble here. It's most of the exhaustion. Um, I don't, I don't struggle much with anxiety, uh, guilt. I've kind of navigated that over the years. It's more of just, Oh no, it's coming back. And immediately I'll communicate that with the people that impacts most of my life. And so, you know, that's my, mm-hmm. my partner living. You with don't him. have to, yeah, no real names if you don't want to, but who's your first person you go to my partner. You realize, okay. yeah, living, living together. I think it's, I, I show up differently in day-to-day life when I'm struggling. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's really important to communicate, Hey, I'm, I'm, struggling today and I'm having, I'm having a hard time. And it's, I think something, I think the depression or the ADHD or whatever it is, it's coming back. And I'll try to get specific of I'm struggling with this or like, I'm having a really hard time with my motivation. And and I have an amazingly supportive partner that says, okay, I know I'm going to have to need to pick up a little bit of, of the sack today or whatever you need. But also he is incredible at just being like, and how can I support you today? That's amazing. I, I really hope to meet this guy one day. Uh, He's great. Do you feel guilty coming to your partner and no. saying, Hey, I need you. Why not? Because we're a team. We're always on that. the same team. And I think that's important to remember in relationships is we will both show up differently every different day, you mm-hmm. know, throughout our relationship. But one thing that will always stay true is we're always on the same team. People are afraid to ask for help. Yeah, they it's are. hard. And and I and I'm really glad you have this team mentality because part of the reason people don't ask for help is they feel guilty. They don't want to be a burden on yeah. other people. Uh or and and this is a personal story for me. I I'm not clinically depressed or anything like that. I don't struggle that way and I don't mm-hmm. pretend I do, but I did have a period of my life where things went very badly for mm-hmm. me. I had left the fire service. I applied to I think 13 law schools and I got zero mm-hmm. uh acceptances. Mm-hmm. And that put me on like a two-ish year detour where, oh my God, it, it was dark. And I felt like a failure. I felt like a loser. I felt like I'd given up a dream job for a pipe dream that never turned out and that I had reached too far. And I thought, well, I got rejected from all these law schools because I don't deserve to be a lawyer. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. And now I don't have the fire service either. I've lost everything. And I remember I really went into a dark place and I really could have used support. And there were people in my life who did try to support me, but I, I, I was just spiraling. And I remember it was really hard to find a supportive network in that time. Mm-hmm. When you first realized, Hey, I'm diagnosed with depression. Yeah. Did you have a network in place already? Or did you find you had to go on a bit of a, a building journey? I had to build from the ground up. I had to figure out what supported me. Um, mm-hmm. that was kind of the start of my yoga meditation journey. Oh, and it started with the, the depression. The diagnosis? Same time. Really? Yeah. Okay. It was more of a journey of when I got diagnosed, it kind of threw me for a loop that I, looking back now, I'm like, you know, this isn't something that I just got in 2016. It had always been there, but it was a kind of a wake up call for me to be like, I need to get to know myself a little better. I really have no idea who I am. And so it kind of turned my journey inward of like, let's figure out who the hell you are. And then we can build from there because at this point you don't even know yourself good enough to know what's going to support you. There's a stigma that questions like that you were asking there are self-indulgent in some way. Like remember those articles that used to come out like 10 years ago, say, oh, millennials are the most self-obsessed generation. It's not self-obsession. It's Mm self-reflection and reflection is so different Yeah, because if uh, kind of a rough example, but let's say you have a race car 
if you do not know how that race car works, if you don't have the manual, if you've never looked under the hood, how the hell are you going to get the best performance out of that yeah. race car? And humans are no different. Mm-hmm. If you don't know what causes you to push people away in your life. I mean, I think that when I experienced a brief moment of depression, at least that's what it felt like. I just, I couldn't stop myself. I just pushed people away. Yeah. I just retreated inward. I pushed my family away. Yeah. I pushed my friends away. I, I lost a lot of friends in that episode. And yeah. I think it's because I never took a minute to self-reflect. So when you went on that journey, what was the first thing you realized that you had to change to start building a supportive network? My lifestyle. At that, at that point in life, I didn't know what I needed just on like a physical level to support my body. I, I was eating things that did not make me feel good. I was drinking a lot at the time. I was spending my days doing things that didn't serve me, things I didn't enjoy that I, people just, I just assume, well, I'm like what do you remember going to parties, um, drinking, staying out till 3am, like yeah. things that I'm like, I felt like I was supposed to enjoy because I was in university, mm-hmm. but I never enjoyed, but I didn't even give myself the space or grace or confidence to say, I actually don't like that. So I'm not going to spend my time doing things that I think I'm supposed to enjoy if I really don't enjoy them at all. Did you feel like an outsider in some of those? I still do. Really? I, I, and I think that's, you know, a lot about being neurodivergent is you're, you always feel like a little bit of an outsider. You feel different. Even when I was, you know, starting my career, I would do things differently. I would, but I was met with support and Mm -hmm. people that saw that as kind of a superpower. Yeah. And let me kind of run with things in a controlled way. Um, And now I'm like, I will always feel, I think, a little bit different Mm -hmm. than a lot of people that I surround myself with. But I'm okay with that because being different is also my superpower. And it's what's brought me to where I am now. It really is. And it attracts people to you, Mm -hmm. I think. If you're you're so focused on, I want to be in, I'm going to go to all the parties and be part of the crowd. I mean, I'll blend in if you want, but that's not going to attract the kind of people who you want in your life to you. I'm not saying that like, oh, if you go to the bars, it's bad people. There's great people at bars. There's great people at parties. But if you're like, where, who's the person I can call when I, when I need a friend? Yeah. You're not going to do that just by doing the things that you think everyone else is doing. You be a little weird because the friend who's going to be most supportive to you is going to be the person who likes playing Dungeons and Dragons with you on Saturday night. You've got this connection. You can be your true selves around each other. Uh, It's so important to be a little weird. Yeah. And and not even weird. Just be yourself. Just be yourself. Um, And that's worked out great for you because you have this big following. And I I don't want to finish this podcast without talking about the work bestie retreats. Yes. I think those are awesome. Yes. So for those who don't know, what are these retreats that you do? Yeah. So it's group travel essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it sounds so wild, but my followers sign up and we travel together and we have full itineraries planned for us. We meet in different mm-hmm. parts of the world and we just travel. We take time away from work. We reconnect mm-hmm. some of them. Um, I teach more like retreat style yoga, meditation mm-hmm. and, and all that. And so it's kind of a time for people to meet like-minded people to them. A lot of people come solo, which is terrifying when you think about it. That, fly, can we take a minute to appreciate how much yeah. guts that takes? Like, fly across I'm the world. I'm going to go yeah. meet this celebrity who I've been following forever. I'm going to meet a bunch of strangers. I'm going to go by myself. Yeah. Yeah. And people meet friends that they see well after the trips are done. We experience new cultures together. <laughs> it's funny. The first day or two, you always hear people of, Oh yeah, I got so many emails last night. I worked this by this the happens end, every time, every time, by the end, really? not a single person's talking about work. It's hard for people to disconnect, but by the end, people are like, wait, what was my job again? I have to go back. Okay. That's this so is what I do for work. Do, do you find people have trouble connecting 
initially without talking about work? Like, is it, is it almost like, Hey, you can't talk about work and they go, well, what the well, hell can talk about work. Do I don't I care about, yeah, I don't care if people talk about There's work. There's no rules when they come. Absolutely. Okay. No, it's show up as you are, whatever you want. If you want to pull your laptop out and send emails, you can do that. I don't care. <laughs> you exist how you want to exist. Your time off is however you want to spend it. But <laughs> I think that we in society, one of the first questions we ask people or how we introduce ourselves is what do you do for work? It's like, who cares? <laughs> it, it, it is Truly. the first thing we ask. Because it's how a lot of people define themselves. They tie their identity to it. So it's, you know, hi, I'm Laura and I do, this is for work. Mm-hmm. Or you ask, you know, tell me about yourself. I'm a lawyer. It's like, cool. Mm-hmm. Tell me about yourself. Like, yeah. like, who are you? What do you enjoy? What are your passions? And, and a lot of people struggle to introduce themselves. If you went up to someone and you're like, tell me about yourself and you can't tell me about what you do for work. A lot of people would be like, okay, I, uh, I, uh, like they, it's yeah, hard it's for people tough. to answer, right. When you, you can't, you have to associate your identity with something that's tied to you and not the external labels and things outside of yourself that you kind of do. And, and people always push back and they're like, yeah, but I think what you do for work defines you. And I, th- and I'm like, well, I think how you show up for work defines you. I don't think what you do for work defines you. That's a really good point. I, I stopped introducing myself as a lawyer a long time ago. I, I mean, I don't know if I'm cheating, but people say, oh, what do you do? I get that all the time. And I'd say I'm a workers' rights advocate mm-hmm. because that to me is really what it's about. It's not about like filing the motions and going to court and arguing. At the end of the day, for me, what I like about what I do is that I take people who you know, are, are just trying to make a living and don't have a lot of power compared to a big corporation. And I try to balance the scales Mm -hmm. that that's what I do. And that's, what's important to me. Um, first of all, is that an acceptable answer at one of these retreats? I I, I didn't say lawyer. What was the question? What do you do? That's acceptable to what do you do? What's your answer to that question? What do I do? Mm -hmm. Um, well, if you're talking about like a work capacity, I'd probably say, you know, I create content, I connect to people, I build community. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you're asking me, like, what do you do in life? I don't, that's just, like, that's not part of. Well, the retreats and the yoga are fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Laura, I really appreciate you coming out here all the way to San Diego. I'm sorry we lost the sun. I don't know where we put it. I and I, I hope we find it out. before you leave. Uh, but thank you for coming out. I do want to wrap up with just a couple of your quick thoughts on a couple of things. Yeah. What, what ultimately, if someone says to you, I want to be successful, can you boil down I know it's unique to every person, but boil down what success really looks like to you. My definition of success. Well, I would, I, if someone asked me that, I would say define success. I don't think you can ask someone, how do I be successful if you don't know what their definition of success is? Because if you came to me and you're, my definition of success is to make hundred thousand dollars. I'd be like, mm-hmm. great. All right. How we can get there is let's look at whatever credentials you have. Let's look at jobs you can apply for. Let's see kind of what fits in that, in that bucket. But if you came to me and you're like, how can I be successful? And your definition of success is having a work life balance where you're able to spend time with your loved ones and, and build mm-hmm. a network. And, and then it's a whole different conversation we're having. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Laura, I'm so bad at answering these questions. No, <laughs> it's tough because I think you did the right thing where, you know, people say, I want to be successful. Tell me how to be successful or tell me what is the definition of success. It, it really is a personal journey that it we is. go on. And I, 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 I can't tell you how much I connected with Donna Sue. I, I really like her because she's not a CEO. She's not a billionaire, but I look at that character on your reels. And I think in my opinion, she's the most successful character there. 
Mm-hmm. She's a self-assured person. She is comfortable in her skin. Mm-hmm. She knows who she wants to connect with at work, who she wants to coach and who she needs to avoid. She values her inner peace and she knows how to protect yeah. it. That's a successful person. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think we should all try to be a little bit like her, but Laura, thank you so much for coming out. I'll Thanks see you at dinner tonight. Me. Okay. Yeah, see you then. Right on. 